mentally knowing that like a medal is slipping away from you and you literally can't move your legs any faster it's just like the worst thing in the world OTB AM live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Well, 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 it's bang on half past seven. It's Monday morning. It's uh, Ger and Dan McDonald with you this morning. Dan, how are you? I'm good, Ger. For um, as, as a celebration, I think, we've sent Owen to uh, the game tonight between Liverpool and Manchester United. He's going to be sending stuff back over the next 24 hours. I don't know if that's punishment or if that's uh, whatever it is. This sounds more like a sort of an indulgent farewell tour, some description, isn't it? It's like... Uh it's like Tony McCoy's last season as a jockey or something. He sort of went everywhere he went. Like you know, it was like it was people sort of I don't know sharing him with compliments and the Liverpool and Man United fans um, sometimes not as hospitable as that though. No, but I mean, okay, maybe it's it's maybe it's a sort of a farewell tour to get a little bit more sort of life experience under the belt. I mean, I presume he's going to encounter more of that where he's going. So this is it like you've got to sort of take yourself out of your comfort zone sometimes he's not going to get the love he's going to get from sort of well heeled Irish rugby fans or whatever it's like a different different vibe exactly or, or Kerry you know, around his people yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's going to be different here yeah. this is preparation for uh, the derby in Mexico City that he's going to which I can't remember the name of the two teams is it Chivas and somebody oh god is he, is he got, yeah I mean it's funny like I sort of think I'd be well enough first and say football travel and I'd be up for experiences but some of the Mexican football stuff is pretty intense I think I think you know um, you do probably need to have your wits about you a small bit there I presume it is Chivas and their rival luckily he won't stand out in that crowd at all <laughs> no well I mean he can, well, can you not claim to be one of those sort of uh, the, the, oh, the, the, the Irish origin sort of people that are um, there's, there's a couple of them out there right yeah you know? but yeah, that's actually true. Yeah, I think that's like invest in a hat. That South African prop and Canelo Alvarez are the perfect examples for him to go, oh, no, what are you talking about? I'm one of you. His Spanish <laughs> yeah. is perfect. And um, Before we get into the uh, performance rankings this morning, am I going to jinx this by saying things are going exceedingly well for Stephen Kenny at the moment in terms of the game time that a lot of young players are getting, the confidence they seem to be playing with, the numbers. There's a few obvious examples of the top end who aren't getting mm. as much game time as we'd like. But other than that, it seems like Every time the team use comes through, it's like, oh, oh, oh. And then the goals are flowing. Yeah, I think what it is is that the age profile of the ones that are doing well is very encouraging. Like, if you look at the the top end, I mean, it may, it may well be that there's only going to be maybe, I don't know, seven, eight Irish players involved in the Premier League this year. I mean, Connor Coventry is on the fringes of the West Ham team. He even played for them during the week and sort of would have expected him to go out on loan and, and maybe he will. But the... Like I say, Seamus Coleman has come back from injury, so hasn't really been involved yet. Matt Doherty is easing his way back in. So there's some of the ones who are like sort of 29 or 30 upwards. Actually, Doherty's 30 now. And for them, like for a couple of them, it's been a small bit of a struggle, but it's more so the younger lads you're speaking about there, really. That I mean, Bazzino's now a Premier League player. Travers, Premier League player, going to be a very overworked Premier League player. I don't think his reputation has been hurt by anything that's happened so far, uh, even though he's conceded quite a few goals. Nathan Collins, exceptionally good. I, I, I know he, he was done by Harry Kane on Saturday, but he's still mixing it in that company. But uh, Andrew Mobile-Bedelli is back. He was excellent for Norwich on Friday, by all accounts. And then, um, yeah, I mean, Obafemi's got a goal. Probably Parrot. still feels very Troy Parrott. Um, who is now playing regularly in the championship level. 
probably needs to add goals still like to some of his performances but the fact is he previously played in championship level at Millwall and Lowell and wasn't getting great reviews seems to have had a much better start to life Ogbené is his second crack at the championship as well um, first time round he was sort of a fringe player or not the player he, he was now Rotherham have started to play him as a striker like Ireland do and he's scoring goals so that's definitely a positive and then uh, I, I'm probably forgetting one or two Darryl Shea was named captain Darryl by Shea, West Brom and played yeah. well and is, like, is scoring not that that's his job but um, you know he he has talked about his leadership ambitions and they've given him the captaincy and you're like, okay, this is good news. Yeah, and like Darroche is someone with sort of a great uh, great temperament and it wouldn't be a huge surprise that he'd probably be spoken about in that sort of, in those terms. And and in a weird way, I think Darroche is maybe 24 now. He's, he's definitely born in the 90s, unlike a lot of the other... Um, these sort of 2000 kids that we sort of have which is still mildly terrifying in some ways when you're when you look at when what they were born after you know uh, in a lot of cases but I mean you do have this and it's giddy talk but you do look at this sort of say back three potential of say a Collins, Amoba Bedelli, Darrow, Shea are going to be around for a, a long time and and even the thing about it is is that you just assume with the, the vagaries of sort of the game someone's going to be unlucky like there's always someone who doesn't who gets an injury or or they, 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 it just it disappears off to the disappear off the radar at some stage but there's actually a sort of a degree of depth there to cover and to be honest like attitude with all these guys wouldn't be concerned at all it might be with one or two I mean we've Aaron Connolly off in Italy trying to sort of uh, to be reborn and um, sort of struggling to get in just yet. Actually, Liam Kerrigan, I should mention, actually, this is another one. Liam Kerrigan, who's from UCD, who, who joined Como in, in Serie B, um, where Cesc Fabregas is one of his teammates and uh, Dennis Wise is the CEO, and it's a little bit of a crazy story, but he came off the bench for his league debut last night and scored. I didn't so, realise Dennis Wise was the CEO of Lake Como. Yes. That's a nice gig. Dennis a nice Wise part of the is the CEO. Because we had Liam Carrigan on our podcast last week with Johnny and he was just saying, is Dennis Wise there much day to day? And he's like, I think he's spending a bit of time between there and London and he has some link up with a sort of an Indonesian football thing. So he's living a sort of a varied uh, and full football life. But there's something going on in Como that they're able to sign Fabregas you know, just drop Fabregas into the dressing room. Uh, Mark Bertram is there, who was the manager of Waterford last year. He's sort of a, as a coach. Right. And he's basically the link that led Liam Kerrigan, this, this, this kid from Sligo, um, to end up playing for Como and scoring on his debut in Serie B last night, which is... It's beautifully random. But it is. I mean, we should all go to for like a week to broadcast from there just to make sure that, you know, <laughs> we get the full experience. You might just be like reading into my, plugging into my thoughts here, Jerry. <laughs> I mean, you've got like, you've got sort of Kerrigan and Como and you've got Aaron Connolly down in Venice and you're thinking a banquet and uh, Festi Ebicelli, Udinese Ebicelli has been involved so far. Um, Kevin Zeffi Inter Milan I mean there's the, you could just you could just do a month there like that, that's the thing like you know maybe Owen should abandon his Mexican plans and just live and just, in Italy just go to Italy yeah. for, just dial in with dispatches uh, on, on Irish players over there every so often yeah, worst ways to live the um, the Cardiff left back I, I, Began Began wow. Joel Began yeah um, he hasn't been as involved this season thus far and Mark McGuinness is another centre half who played at the weekend um, but there is like this sort of depth in the defensive areas, which is and and the one you mentioned left backs because longer term 
that is probably one position where Ireland are a little bit older. With Enda Stevens has been injured, James McLean is is again he's had a sort of resurgence. But Robbie Brady is the one that suddenly sprung back to life. Um, that he joined Preston. I don't know. Like, did it lead news bulletins when Robbie Brady joined Preston? Was it just one of those things where it was like? To me, it was a couple of paragraphs in a way. Oh, Robbie Brady's trying to re- relaunch his career at Preston. But there was an element of believe it when you see it, probably after the injury luck he's had in, in recent seasons. But he's been excellent so far. He's scooping man of the match awards. He's playing left wing back, I think, sort of primarily. And all of a sudden, he's probably roared straight back into the Ireland pitcher. And again, he's only 30. Like, he's not... Um, and, and I don't, does that surprise people? Does it seem like he's older, been around for longer, or not? But he's 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 basically lost the prime of his career. That sort of mid to late twenties. Um, he was about twenty four when he got that goal in Lille. He joined Burnley around that time, but I think within a year he got a serious injury around the time of that World Cup playoff. I think after the World Cup playoff with Denmark, which was twenty seventeen, he got the injury the following month, and he hasn't been the same since. But tentatively, he seems to be back to being a very good player now. Uh, so that's all a very rosy picture in terms of the, the players playing at the level they're playing at. One kind of caveat to this is Jason Knight's still playing right back for Derby, a division lower than we think his talent mm. merits. And I don't know. I mean, there's obviously 10 days left in the transfer window. Doesn't seem. I haven't heard anybody linked with him. I haven't seen anything, any signs of him going. So maybe, maybe he just is going to play right back for a season and he'll be, you know... Uh, He'll understand the physicalities of that division. Maybe, maybe that's what he needs. This uh, day I, don't I don't know. Think so. Like, I'm not really sure what's going on. There was some suggestion last night that Derby were not willing to sell, that there had been more interest. And I'm not sure about sort of the the quality of the source, but it was definitely going around last night, sort of local channels in in the UK. But I think the crucial thing about Knight is that his contract is up at the end of the year. So you kind of wonder: is there some kind of you're always looking at the you know what games are potentially being played around this it's impossible to me to think that a player at a contract at the end of the year they're just going to let him go you know for nothing next summer he's younger so there'll be compensation things and so on but you kind of wonder is it is it going to be is it kind of a a, a tactical thing going on here you know where in January maybe he just goes and they cash in then or the the suggestion was they're going to try to open contract talks to him I know Derby have a bit of investment but I don't know, like Stephen Kenny a couple of weeks back was doing a thing in, in Offaly and he, he, he actually spoke about how last year he had quite a few League One players in the squad and this year he didn't think there was going to be any until Conor Harrahan joined Derby. It was almost left as though a given that Jason Knight would be moving on from Derby. Yeah. He didn't even suggest, well, Jason Knight's obviously there too. And, and now we've ended up in this situation, but... Um, I don't know. I, I find it bizarre that that, there, that a move hasn't been done, and I'm kind of wondering: is it just sort of brinkmanship of some description going on here that late in the day in the window something suddenly does happen? Well, fingers crossed it does. Okay, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today. Here's what's coming up between now and uh, ten o'clock this morning. Samuel Lurkus is going to join us at ten past eight for the view from Manchester United side of things. The sports page is at eight thirty-five. Phil Thompson's after that. For the Liverpool side of things, ahead of Liverpool Man United tonight, Ronan Mullen's going to join us in studio at ten past nine to talk about the end of Anthony Joshua as a contender at a heavyweight level, perhaps, and what comes next, whether or not the Usyk Fury thing is real, and then we'll play out with Kenneth Egan's analysis of it as well. But at 7.41, time for us to get into the Gillette Labs performance rankings. 
you know that wasn't an All-Ireland winning performance probably should have won the game based on the second half performance is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup maybe not OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head that performance is just lacked that intensity so every Sunday evening we ask you for your suggestions on our Instagram stories and um, the opportunity is there for you to win a Gillette Labs starter pack uh, and uh, if you agree or disagree with Dan's selection that doesn't really matter you'll go in the draw either way Dan where are we going? I think we're going to start with Chelsea in the red I think um, I mean like it was in terms of the Premier League weekend there was some there was some good stuff like you know, the Newcastle Man City game was excellent yesterday but uh, and maybe maybe just Manchester United are lucky they, didn't, they don't play until Monday night because otherwise they're just going to belong in this sort of red across the season. You know, this is a, it gives them a little bit of a break. This is their customary yeah. spot. Yeah, so they're, it, they're, they've stepped aside for TV purposes and they've let Chelsea slip in there. But um, yeah, I mean, Chelsea were pretty good against Spurs last week, really. When you consider the the uh, probably the pre-match chat about the I suppose the the power ranking almost it felt like sort of Spurs are like trending up and, and Chelsea maybe not then they were excellent they should have won and then concede like a bad goal bad goal I know there was controversy around sort of various aspects of it um, but then they go to Leeds and, and get done 3-0 and in such a way that like you're looking at some of the commentary after and chatting to people you know who are sort of big into Chelsea and they're sort of wondering is this team potentially a little bit, I don't know, mentally fragile or a bit soft? Um, I think Leeds outran them considerably as well. And they were missing Kante and there's a couple of sort of elements of uh, Kovacic, like there's elements of mitigation there, but um, looks like they sort of got it outworked and got done, Koulibaly sent off. And it's just one of those worrying ones where you do have like a great buzz around Arsenal and Spurs, okay, winning games without being... Uh, tremendous or picking up points without being tremendous um, but Chelsea had a bit of a sort of a, a weird sort of summer everything's still happening late they're still trying to sign for Fana now and various things but you'd be a little bit you know a little bit worried about them now none of the teams who win leagues tend sorry most of the teams who win leagues tend not to have these uh, where you throw in a 3-0 defeat at a team like Leeds and where it comes in the situation that you collapse because of errors you know mm-hmm. if there's errors like or if there's a mistake or something happens, then you roar back into the game because you're title contenders. It's very early and we're not overreacting. You know, as you said, the Spurs game, they played really well. But, um, like, I, 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 I thought they were going to be really good this season. Yeah, I, I think there seems to be this question about leadership and, like, what do they, what do they have? Like, Mikula Bali was a big sign and he gets, you know, he's sent off. Like, you know, was Rudiger, like, a big part of their... Uh, maybe not everyone's cup of tea, but like, are they missing a certain steal or something? Like, I mean, as you say, you can't really mention it without sort of the, the Mendy mistake, which sort of um, gave Leeds a, a 1 0 head start. But then they conceded straight away or almost straight away afterwards. And that's the thing. Like, you look at, you know, you look at other teams like Liverpool with sort of 10 men, they still come back and get a draw. You know, the City won yesterday where they're maybe not at it, but yet they could still have won that game against the sort of a. You know, Newcastle are better than Leeds, you know, and they, the city can still win. And like Chelsea, they okay, they, seems like a couple of things. I mean, Tuchel was on about the travel was complicated or something. They had some issues with the travel that the, the I mean, you know, are they not allowed to pay for it anymore? I mean, yeah, all that's all that's gone. All their excuses yeah, are gone, right? Like, I mean, they seem to get something wrong on the travel end of things anyway, um, or some issue happened. But the, I think the players and the staff had to travel separately or something. I mean, they were going to Leeds, like they weren't going to sort of North Macedonia, but. Um, 
it, it, I don't know. It's just like it's just sometimes you look at a team and you think, yeah, there'd be worrying signs and how they lost the game. Like as you said, like you you will lose games, but it's how you lose them. And um, they seem to lose it in a way that would sort of raise a little bit of questions. Um, early stage of the season, all those caveats apply, but still um, a little bit alarming. Uh, Kante's on his hamstring and he's also 31. So like he might not be available for 36, 37 league games this year. So you're going to have to deal with situations where you somehow make up for that. And maybe they just don't have the players at the moment. And maybe that's why they've been linked with a lot of extra players and the, the window isn't done as we know and their owner seems to be very keen on, on shopping as much as he possibly can and telling everybody he exists and um, yeah, uh, you know that's the whole point I guess about being rich you know well that's I mean and, and this is it I mean it's, it's almost like some things never happened at Chelsea like it's back to you know it's just uh, Bowley sitting in the same seat almost as Abramovich and it's like it's a, a different different character it's like, it's, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a new series of a box set or something where they've sort of they've injected a bit of life into the Chelsea thing here um, when it looked maybe a little bit more grave in terms of where they were a couple of months ago but it's a bit like the Manchester United thing at the moment if you're running around at the end of the window trying to get a lot of things done it's rarely a picture of health. I know it's sort of exciting, you know, for, for fans in some ways because there's, there's all these possibilities and names and stuff, but it's rarely a sign these days that sort of things are going especially smoothly or especially well. It doesn't really paint to, like, a, a good season. Are we seeing the clubs you're expecting to have a decent season this year being linked with sort of multiple names or, or going all around the, the houses at this stage? No. Not really, no. I did think that... Um that the end of the Spurs-Chelsea game was like a, an important moment for Thomas Tuchel where we kind of saw a bit more of his personality and who he was. But maybe I got that completely wrong. And maybe his team were looking at that going, oh, just sit down. Just sit down. What mm. are you doing? What are you doing? We know what you're like. Because the response from them has been to throw one in at, at Leeds. Like, you know, Leeds is obviously very intimidating, great atmosphere. It's great to see them back in the way they were. The, the stadium looked absolutely sensational, completely rocking yesterday. And they've got a very different style of play. And they've got a really interestingly put together group of players. And I don't know if, I don't know if like, uh, I don't know what's going to happen at Leeds. So, like, maybe they're better than what we're saying either. Like, maybe we're being disrespectful. In, in some ways, we're underplaying uh, the Leeds contribution to it. And we're pretty happy for Jesse Marsh in some ways. But I know what you're saying about Tuchel. Like, I mean, he's sort of. Um, people always have this Chelsea shelf life in their heads, you know, that, that there's always a, there's this sort of cycle of like, there's an early peak and then over time. And that was maybe an Abramovich era thing people had in their mind, but maybe, I don't know. Like, if it's in the DNA of the club? Well, he's an intense character, right? So maybe like, maybe again, like, I don't know, like he, he, maybe he's just bringing in some players that he, that he, he wants to sort of mould the team and his personality, but there's always that slight danger. It is a club that has a history of uh, people getting sick of the manager's voice very quickly as well, too. All the way back to Hullet and Hoddle and that area. Like, it actually predates Abramovich, if you think about it. It's just that they got success when Abramovich was there. So we'll see. We'll see exactly what happens and whether or not they sign any more players. But um, So they are definitely in the red. Also in the red is a Belarusian referee. Yeah, so so Shelburne were knocked out of the Women's Champions League yesterday. The... Uh, they're in the playoff round because they had the good win during the week and then they were playing the Icelandic side yesterday, Valor. And they lost 3-0 and I suppose it's one of those things you see the result on paper, a 3-0 scoreline and you think, well, I mean, it's like I think for the 
women's national league teams. I mean, they're effectively not effectively, but they are amateur trying to compete at a sort of a decent level. It's always going to be hard for them, and you sort of think, yeah, they've they've met their match there. But then you sort of read some of the reports afterwards. You saw that there was a Shabron player sent off after the final whistle, Amanda Budden. You saw there was six yellow cards to Shells and zero to the opponent. And you're kind of wondering, is there a little bit of a backstory here? And, and the, uh, the FEI sent out their like, official report, which I think goes through the official channels. And there's, there's no real mention of the officiating there because you can't. Like, it has to be very um, straight down the line. But there was this thread then that was put up on Twitter last night by a user, Evan H, I think. And he, he posted it out of like a... Because this game was available to watch on a stream and a, a series of clipped decisions during the game which helped to explain why Shell's players weren't shaking hands with the officials at full time and they wouldn't be I don't think they'd be regarded as a team as say for like petulant sort of over the top behaviour in such a way and you're always conscious of like green tinted glasses coming to this and I mean they did lose 3-0 it wasn't 1-0 with a sort of a 93rd minute offside goal or something Um but it's out there, and there did seem to be a series of very questionable decisions went against them during the game from the Belarusian official. I see some of the players tweeting about it afterwards. Again, I don't think that would be standard behaviour from them, that it did seem to be a particularly eye-openingly bad display, including like a penalty shout that led to one of the goals at the other end, um, a couple of very dodgy offside calls for a one-on-one situation, and it does seem like things could have been different um, if they got a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more rubber to green from the officials. People talk about this look at the Irish thing, right? You know, it doesn't always extend to our, our sports teams. I think it's it ironic, there. right? I mean, I'd like to think it's ironic. I know, I mean, um, I, like, is it not, is it not because we never got luck? Is that, I mean... Is that, is that the origin of it? I yeah. don't know. I, Someone I needs to tell Americans, like when Shane Larry wins a tournament or something by six shots and it's like look of the Irish or whatever. So, well, That's uh, like lucky leprechaun nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. But do you remember the one years ago where he, I think it was at Firestone, where he did get a ridiculously lucky bounce on the 18th and he did get a bit of luck and then it was caught, well, there you go. There's that famed look of the Irish that they speak about yeah. coming to the fore again. But it does seem like shells, without sort of making it into this classic hometown, uh, it's a disgrace what happened here. Because th- there was a thread post up of decisions and one or two of them was like, eh, maybe not that bad. But there was enough of a body of evidence there to suggest that they were rightly... Uh, He's got about 15 clips. Yeah, there's a lot of clips. <laughs> <It's> like- <laughs> you know, it's like you sort of... Uh, if you're bringing that PowerPoint presentation to the table on the basis of two or three, you're like... Eh a bit weak and as I said within them there's isolated ones that maybe weren't that bad but the collective the collective looks pretty uh, yeah pretty poor yeah, yeah. so hopefully um, you know hopefully there's an investigation into what the hell happened and uh, everybody gets some uh, whatever truth Truth. You know, it's difficult yeah. sometimes to talk about these things and what you think might have happened or what might be going on and um, we'll just leave it there but I've I've retweeted that if you want to get onto Twitter and have a look and make up your own mind about whether or not uh, Shells were given a fair crack of the whip last night um, so uh, that is our last one in red Belarusian referee the PGA Tour is in amber here um, speaking of the look of the Irish so Shane Larry almost made the final 30 for the, yeah. the final uh, week of the, the money fight that they have at the end of the season but um, Adam Scott got up and down from a greenside bunker to um, I think he finished 31st in the list and so he's not going to make it for next week now 
No, I mean there's one or two injury doubts, but I don't know if they can if he can get in if like Zalatoris or, or Cameron Smith or someone pulls out. I'm not sure if that's the case, but yeah, Scott got an amazing up and down at the at the last. He was in two bunkers on the hole, and he managed to. Oh no, he was standing in a bunker for a second shot, and Larry sort of went sitting there waiting to go through. But like, I don't know, the end of the PGA, PGA Tour is a bit like it's a bit of a money grab in a way. Like they have this sort of convoluted format where the top thirty. They go to the Tour Championship next week, and I think it's like uh, Cantlay is like the, or is the Scheffler, sorry, who leads, like he starts off at 10 under on Thursday, like, and the field goes down to even money. So, like, it's, it's, you start from your position or whatever. But I put PJ Tour in the amber because, again, it was like another decent tournament at the weekend, sort of, you know, good leaderboard, Cantlay, um, Scheffler, Xander Schoffler, you know, a few other names you mentioned there, like, they're all decent enough names. And you can't help but avoid like this live golf thing, which is in the air all the time. And the tournament last week was preceded by this big players meeting where Tiger Woods flew in and it was like some of the sort of the big dogs in the PGA Tour got together to say, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this threat that apparently there's seven more players about to go? All the all the sources who've been right about stuff before are now suggesting there's going to be like seven more departures after the the tour championship next week. I think Cameron Smith's assumed to be in it, and Leishman, and, and there's a little bit of guessing going on around some of the others. Um, but the PGA Tour's response, like, is to it, it does appear from the sort of briefing coming out from the weekend, is that they're going to introduce uh, a little bit more of a tighter calendar, but including a large number of smaller field no cut events for their top players, which to me. Is leaves yourself open to like a small bit of grief when you consider that part of the, like the the argument for you know the traditionalist almost argument against live was these non-competitive no-cut events. You know, you're taking away some of the the competitive edge um, or some of the traditional edge from golf, the the thrill of making the cut or whatever, to create smaller exclusive tournaments which, again, is going to keep a certain degree of power in the hands of a few. And they are going to throw more money out, to, I think, to the lesser players. Like, I think everyone is going to get maybe upfront money at the start of the year that their, some of their prize money is deducted from. But that's a little bit of a... <laughs> some of the live contracts, they seem to be that way structured as well for the lower players. You get your upfront money and your prize money is deducted from it. So I'm just not so sure like about this... Um, this broader PGA Tour strategy in this sort of fight that's that's ongoing, that whether this is going to... I don't know how this one's going to play itself out. I, they're going to do a deal at some point. That's what's going to happen. Do you think? I do. I think it's inevitable that they're going to do a deal at some point because too much money for both of them to actually coexist. Like, at some point, the PGA Tour will have less money than Liv because Liv have endless money. Like, that's the way it's going to work, Right. They've decided that sports washing really, really works. The fights on Saturday night, the uh, the Newcastle game at the weekend, that was an absolutely sensational game of football, right? Mm. Like with some of the best thing we've ever seen. And it's two sport, sports washing. Like, and everybody's forgotten about the original reason that Man City are now owned by who they're owned by. And ultimately, um, reading the New York Times during the week, like Saudi Arabia are no longer a prize state. I mean, it was 18 months ago that they were a prize state and then Joe Biden's fist pumping them and they need their oil and everybody loves Saudi Arabia. And they're like, oh, it's very progressive. Like, women can do some stuff that women can do in other countries. Ignore, Apart from use Twitter, maybe, you ig- know. Ig- ignore the beheadings and the yeah. Twitter stuff. And like, 
they own a bit of Twitter. You know? <laughs> yeah, look, and they're doing stuff. I mean, they're doing stuff with the ladies' European tour and the LPGA, which isn't as contentious. But I'm still not so sure about the comp. I mean, I totally take what you're saying there about the the sort of the Saudi status and 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 the hypocrisy that can accompany some of the the live outrage. But in saying that, the live strategy seems to be about a takeover, and this idea that they desire compromise. A lot of people question that. Like the question, the extent to which now, like some of the stuff that the, the PGA Tour are doing here as well, they're on about uh, changing its non-profit status and effectively giving some of the players a form of equity, like in the tour, including Tiger Woods. And there's a suggestion: is there some Tiger power play going on here? That all of a sudden Tiger comes in, not so much as sort of the the, the savior of golf, but also someone who ends up owning half of the property afterwards you know and and players will almost end up with a sort of a this removing some of this sort of a some of this uh i don't know the bureaucratic obstacles that were there before some of the paperwork obstacles that are before can now let a sort of a cabal of the better pga tour players make a load more which sadly in a way backs up part of phil phil mickelson's outrage that you know the players weren't getting enough out of it even if that was I mean, analysing Mickelson's uh, motivations will take it down a completely different path. Um, but it just strikes me that the PGA Tour has had a bit of a revival, like the great Sunday events. Like, I love watching the particular like the Sunday nights. And part of it has been the PGA Tour is where you sell the dream a bit, that you'll have this week where, you know, you'll have the big names up there, but you'll have some unheralded sort of ranked sort of one, two, five, or even lower guy shooting for it. And if you introduce all these exclusive sort of no-cut events, you'd imagine they're going to want the bigger players to play in that, and they're maybe less likely to play in some of the other events where yeah. they rub shoulders with the... Or the, could, sort of, or could miss the cut, yeah. Yeah, and, and that to me is in danger of... Um, I don't know. I, I, I'd be a little... It's a, I'm popping them into amber there because I'm not so sure. I think they were, they were probably winning a degree of the, the PR battle, and I, I felt anyway in many ways, and... and some of this stuff now is sort of... Maybe you're right. Maybe it does come to compromise, but I'm still not sure if Liv really want that. I don't know if the compromise means that uh, the two tours merge. I actually don't think that's the, the end compromise, which I probably did at the start. But now I think that like the compromise would be we can share these players for a certain number of events, but you'll be a nominated Liv player and you'll be a nominated PGA Tour player. And that's, mm. they'll coexist so that the big weeks of Liv won't be the big weeks of the PGA Tour. Because ultimately the amount of money that they need to generate from the TV companies and the, the, the money that they need to generate from sponsors and then ticket sales and all that kind of stuff is stuff that is going to give them um, profitability into the future. And if if the PGA Tour ends up being owned by Tiger and Rory and a bunch of the players, then it's going to be in their interest to do a deal to make sure that the best players, that Cameron Smith can play in the, at least the four majors and enough events to on loan from Liv like it's, it, there's probably a very easy way to do that you know yeah I don't know I just feel like it's got pretty rancorous though in some ways that I just don't I just don't know there's a feeling that after the again and you, like, there's a feeling that after this next exodus that's coming of whoever is in it the sort of five or seven players that they're not expecting a huge amount more it feels like they've maybe reached their and, and I mean the Liv thing is like 48 golfers as well so there's not, they're not there's not a scope for them to sort of find that much more I'm not so sure. Like some of that court case was very interesting recently. 
I, I, I totally see why people are saying, and it's, it's almost an element of experience that says they're going to come to the table here and, and it's, it's going to be a compromise. But I'm not sure. It's got quite personal. I'm not sure if that compromise happens with Greg Norman there. Maybe it's that he gets thrown overboard at some stage and that's part of the compromise. But I don't see it in the short term. Maybe, maybe over the longer term. In America, they seem to be able to put their uh, differences aside in the name of money. It <laughs> yeah. seems like a lot of those court cases are very rancorous yeah. until a deal is done and everybody's standing in the court case and the court says, go, yes, I mean, yeah. Just, that was all false. But I don't enough. know, these live guys, are, are, can they just assimilate back into the field like when there's some depth of feeling towards like I, Sergio. Maybe it'd be terrific to watch. Like yeah. It could be actually fascinating uh, to watch the simulation. But I kind of wonder if it's too far gone for that. I wonder, yeah. do the uh, makers of the um, golf documentary series on Netflix, do they also need to make a, a simultaneous one with the live people so that it's not just the PGA Tour that it's actually live and PGA Tour yeah. and we get to see what the truth is being said and we need to figure, we need to figure that the Saudis better not have a stake in that Netflix series I mean, the, whole, that, the whole thing is thrown then if that, you, you wouldn't be terribly surprised that probably, probably got 5% uh, Irish athletics are in the green after a sensational week really like uh, every night there was something worth watching and every night we were generally performing either uh, PBs or season's best or meddling it was, it was, it was incredible it was. And to me, like, again, as someone who's like, you know, like a lot of people, you sort of dip into it around the major tournaments. And it, it feels like with the Irish uh, athletics team, it's mainly like the Olympics, of course, the people dip in. They maybe find it hard to, to medal or, or to be competitive. And then there's a knee jerk. Oh, this is terrible. And yet you see across the last week that the level they're performing at is incredibly high. Um, you know, the, the, I mean, Mark English last night sort of winning a medal when, when it wasn't necessarily something that was being talked about hugely across the day. You know, it wasn't as if there was a massive build-up. It was almost like this is a, a, almost a bonus that was sort of slipping under the radar at the last minute. And you've got all these performances across the week, which again, I see Carl Dennehy writing in the, uh, in the Independent Today in our paper again about sort of sending a message to, to Jack Chambers off the back of this that, again, like a lot of these athletes, um, they've been funded to various degrees, but some of their coaches are doing it for free. Um, their the sort of hands are tied behind their back almost relative to some of the countries they're competing against. And I mean, it strikes a chord with me, someone probably covers, say, League of Ireland. And you, you, I'm in Hungary last week, sort of watching Shamrock Rovers trying to go and compete with these forces. And you're, we have such a focus of naturally at times in this country, and everyone's a part of it, media's a part of it, everyone's complicit in it to some degree. Like you have this focus on the, the, the major sports that, that sort of sustain our news cycle for, for so much of the year. And yet, um, there are athlete, athletes there performing to a pretty high level. Who, who clearly feel rightly that, that their performance is the time to maybe make a little bit of noise and say, well, if we had a little bit more to work with here, just think what we could do. The other thing I think that um, is interesting is that they, they all, it seems like oh, the vast majority of them have made themselves available before and afterwards for all the interviews and they're talking about themselves and they're talking about their sport and they're, they're excellent ambassadors. So whatever it is that... Um, whoever has set the tone for that like Kieran McGee is always available whenever you want to talk to her she's always available and we talked to her after the Commonwealth Games and we talked to her she'll be on again later on in the week and uh, like the, the current crop of ambassadors that they have have all got their own different backstories which like in athletics when you're a sole trader like that you have to overcome adversity again and again anytime you get injured you're not really able to uh, generate funding or win races or 
improve and they all have that in their in their locker and they're all able to talk about that and they're all also able to um, talk about the, the people and the support network that they have but as you rightly point out most of that support network is doing it on a voluntary or an amateur basis and if you just think about like what good quality coaching does if that coach is actually able then to go on and invest time in developing and get even better all of a sudden that's a force multiplier because they can coach more of these athletes and explain to more people this is what I do with this athlete over here who you've just seen on TV representing Ireland and reaching a, a final or setting a personal best and I don't know it feels like um, there's a few blockages in that system that uh, could fairly easily be sorted out so definitely in the green this week yeah yeah for sure yeah no, and, I, and I did, they have to win their way into the news cycle sometimes you know and that's why it's right when you're doing well to make a little bit of noise as much as some people would just like to enjoy the moment they know there's a bigger picture behind that I think as well Shamrock Rovers in the green is the league title done and dusted? Pretty much yeah I was in Tala last night for the game against Dundalk and like, I was in Hungary during the week where they were sort of turned over by Farrin Farris comfortably enough on Thursday and you're thinking this is going to be dangerous for them on the Sunday um, against Dundalk if Dundalk had won last night they'd be a point behind um, and Rovers are heading into a situation where they're playing this Thursday the second leg maybe not the most important game but they're playing six more Thursdays in a really congested sort of uh, club football schedule and that would mean six Thursdays means they're going to play six games on Sundays two games a week Um, they could be vulnerable Um, but that win last night I mean they didn't have a huge amount of the ball I think they had like 30 something percent possession but they won 3-0 because they just clinically executed a game plan and as Stephen Bradley said afterwards they 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 want a little bit of a breathing space going into these because they want to they want to give this conference league a real go Um, and if you have to stress in the back of your mind um, that you could lose your title which is the champions route is what allows them to effectively get into that conference league because you get way more chances as a champion in Europe. You can afford to lose and you get through back doors and you know you get to where you want to be and get that money. Like the whole this idea of their dominance really the starting point has to be winning their league every year. So if a European run cost them winning the league, there's they're sort of back to to sort of not, not back to square one but certainly not a million miles from it so like I think I think I heard you speak about it a couple of weeks ago when they got through or whatever it's it's not a case that they get in to a group stage football and straight away everything is perfect and they're going to be you hit the ground running and like it's part of like this year and then you get back again next year and, and you try and get back again next year and, and it, it's going to take time but the whole underpinning it is winning their league and the fact that they've managed to win that game last night it makes it a good week for them, even if it didn't go their way in Hungary. It feels like the difference this time is that the architecture and apparatus around the club is much more developed than it was whenever any of the other clubs have made runs like this in the past, even Dundalk under Stephen Kenny yeah. and Rovers when they were there the first time. like uh, They were brilliant achievements, but they were certainly uh, of that moment as opposed to this is now kind of, this is the top of a, a pyramid at Rovers where it looks like I'm sure everything's not perfect, but their their youth system is producing players uh, that they're unfortunately sometimes losing to uh, League One, as we've seen, and they're also able to buy the best young players in Ireland. Not to um, yeah. not to gloss over that either, but that actually, if if they get into the uh, group stages this year, it's not it's not a fluke. It's not like a mad oh look where we are. It's like well that's what we expect. That's our new base camp. Yeah, it's it's not like previous teams. I think it was a story like a brilliant manager and a group of players executing something. And like part of the coverage is, isn't it amazing they've done this? Like I think Shamrock Rovers the first time they got in the group stages they were training. I think in the AUL or just in the process of like moving towards 
um, Talad actually not even training in the area. Whereas now they've like, you know, hundreds of kids up there. Um, you're right, during the week in Hungary, they brought on two 17-year-olds in the second half, uh, Justin Farazai and Gideon Tede. And they may well be sold, like, you know, at a very young age, but... Did, did they have a couple of players gone overseas, not just Bazunu, who's, who's made, what, over three million quid for the club um, subsequently, but they have a couple of others like Sinclair Armstrong, a QPR and a few others that are going to probably earn money for them in the coming years. And people at Rovers would make the point that actually, and, and people at other clubs as well would be quick to tell you that some of the better players they have at the moment, say 16, 17, they were taken from other clubs at a particular stage. But they do have their first generation of Rovers players coming to the boil now, as in ones who were there from eight, nine. And they have this transition year program, which is sort of a full time football program that they're going to have more kids going on. And you're right, like there's something beneath the bonnet that's sort of um, that that's going to make it a little bit more sustainable. And in a couple of years time, I mean, their first team at the moment is still very experienced, recruited from elsewhere. Other people will rightly point that out. But I think you're going to see a little bit more of a gradual introduction of their own players and a little bit more control over their own destiny rather than being vulnerable to, say, one bad year screwing you, which was always the the danger for an an Irish club. I I think they're they're sort of moving beyond that point to a level where they can almost probably withstand that bad year. And that in itself is like a a weird measure of progress, but it is one that is is relevant. Can I ask, um, and not to, I mean, we could spend an hour on this now, but uh, is, is what they've done copyable by Derry, for example, or anybody else who has that level of owner who would have the money and the ability to soak up some some short-term pain, knowing full well that actually there is an industry now if you actually can harvest the best young players and sell them to England, and that will give you that sustainability for the down years when the team doesn't actually win the league or qualify for group stages in Europe, that actually you can't have a 10-year plan, because this is the fruition of 10 years of thinking really at Rovers. Yeah, I, it is a copy, but it's, it, like, it is a good question. I mean, like Derry is a weird example because they're not actually subject to the Brexit stuff over there. So they had a their 16-year-old Trent Coney Doherty is an exceptionally talented ball against. He went to Liverpool as a 16-year-old, as he can, under sort of the, the old rules. But I think the broader point is, I think people are getting around their heads on no, it's really important to like have a training ground. You know, like let's have a training ground. I mean, it doesn't sound like the most original thought, but I mean, if you're hiring training facilities, you know, and sharing them with like a Leinster Senior League club or something like that, like how do you actually build a club? Like your your team is always going to be the jerseys and the manager and and stuff that's pretty transient, and other clubs are trying to do it, but the, the funding piece obviously becomes particularly relevant here, um, and this is why. Like I would be aware that, that anything that's that's going on as regards, say, discussion for like third level or sorry, third party support, like this is the area they're going to put it into. I think it's going to be the academies, but you're right. Like it takes a long period of time. Um, Brexit has provided this opportunity, but there's a there's a little parallel here with the athletic situation. Like we are looking for control of we're taking control of a degree of youth production here yeah. and yet we have coaches doing it for free yeah. volunteers doing it for free like that that catches up with you over a period of time but it's always worth talking about right yeah. if you want to get in touch this morning 0879180180 is the WhatsApp number OTBAM is live each morning with Gillette Labs for an effortless finish your day that is this week's performance rankings if you want to get into them you can uh, just get onto Instagram and uh, you can be in with a chance of winning a Gillette Labs starter pack. Samuel Luckers is on after these ads. First, here's Jamie Clark talking to Ashling O'Reilly about whether he will return to the Armagh Gaelic football panel.
Um, so you're in with Cross, so Armagh. Is there any conversations with Kieran McGinney or would you rule out going back? Not at the moment. Obviously, Kieran and I have a good relationship. Um, look, Armagh's Armagh. They had a, a decent year last year, and like from my point of view, my my I want our, the best for Armagh, and you know whatever decision I make is is for the best of Armagh and not for me. So I'll definitely be putting Armagh first when it comes to making that decision. So it's never say never. See how you go across and see how you're playing sort of thing. Exactly. And if it comes to, you know, the commitment thing, whether it's I might have to miss a couple of nights because of this. If it's if it's not able to happen, then, you know, obviously, you know, I might be able to commit. But look, it's, it's, it's a long season and, you know, the championship a long way away. Mm-hmm. But we'll see what happens. And so what was it like watching them? Obviously, last year, uh, that game against Galway, quarterfinal, it went to extra time, penalties in the end. You went to the game, you're saying? Yeah, I went to all the games. Um, just to get, I suppose, to get a feel for Crow Park as a supporter and see what it meant, you know, to the Armagh fans as well. It was kind of nice. Um, the Galway game was quite intense, but uh, yeah, look, obviously, I would have preferred to play, you know, with the crowd. And mm-hmm. I suppose it was, it was a lovely day. Um, the atmosphere was great, but look, they had chances to win it, and I think that's, I suppose, that's when you're playing at that elite level. You don't look at it as in that was a great game. I look at it that Armagh should have won. You know, OTB AM. Right, let's talk about the game between Manchester United and Liverpool. I'm delighted to say Samuel Luckhurst is with us to help preview the game and maybe talk a little bit about what's going on in the background to it. Samuel, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on again. We were just chatting in the ad break about how repetitive this story is and how difficult it is to find something new to say about how badly run Manchester United are at the moment. And yet, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of green shoots with the signing of Casemiro. What's your instinct about the direction that we're heading in at the moment? It's, it really is difficult to, to keep up at times in that when the Casemiro reports emerged last week, immediately you thought, that's, that's not a goer, that, that, Feels fanciful, five times Champions League winner, joining Europa League fodder, a team who've just had their worst season in, in decades. And yet, three days later, United announced that they've signed him. It's, it's pretty clear what the main source of motivation is for Casemiro. But because United are desperate, because they are panic buying now, they're in a situation where anything goes, uh, they'll accept anything. In the case of Casemiro, he's got great pedigree. He was brilliant in the Champions League final in, in May against Liverpool. Um, you look at those Champions League final triumphs, he's he's done it twice against Jurgen Klopp's teams. So there are a lot of positives from it. I don't think it's necessarily a massive coup. I mean, ultimately, United have overspent a hell of a lot on someone who, although not ageing, is, is their peak years are probably behind them. And although he's got the World Cup coming up, so he needs to maintain rhythm there, he's on an obscenely long contract for a 30-year-old. And this is another common theme with Manchester United in that they can't help but dole out contracts that are far too long to players, whatever the age, uh, whatever the pedigree. And previously, that was cited as um, you know a, a flaw of the of the past regime. That was on Ed Woodward's watch. That wouldn't be happening again. But it is already happening it's still too early to judge these players who are getting new contracts, these new signings. Uh, Lissandro Martinez is already on a, a six-year contract, effectively, and you've got pundits like Jamie Carragher saying that he can't he can't do it in a back back four in the Premier League. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. But as far as the management and the players are concerned, as as, as dreadful as it has been at the start of the season, some of them are going to need time, and understandably, the focus has been on the ownership over the last few weeks or so. 
Um, that focus on the ownership, uh, we, we've actually seen that before, but it never really leads to anything. Is there any sense that it's different this time or is it just, is it chatter that people are trying to manifest into reality as opposed to something real? It's a good question. The fact that Sir Jim Ratcliffe has, well, his spokesman has, has come out and clarified that he is interested in buying Manchester United, which a lot of people have suspected for quite some time. Ratcliffe did an interview with the BBC earlier in the year where he, he practically said he would be, but that United weren't for sale. And it's still unclear if, if they are indeed for sale. I mean, the Glazer family are never going to comment on this. Um, they're, they're hermits, really. They're extremely reticent, and extremely coy about their plans. There's not a lot of um, transparent communication. Joel Glazer has spoken to a handful of Manchester United fans on the fans, not the fans forum, sorry, um, a fans advi- advisory board. But I believe those fans who go on it have to sign a non-disclosure act. So nothing or very little comes out of those meetings, which, again, I don't think is particularly progressive for fan club relations when the co-chairman and the, the main owner and the, the man who's ma- mainly involved with the running of Manchester United on a day-to-day basis. I mean, believe it or not, Joel Glazer does hold daily calls with, with people in Manchester about what's going on over here and what's the latest crisis. But it's not in the United fans' interest um, for these discussions to be held in such a, a discreet manner. But that's that's part of the agreement that uh, the, the club and these handful of fans settled on after the Super League last year. And I, I just think that although uh, there's, there has been a lot of noise over the last week, thanks to Elon Musk, firstly, and then, as as I said, some G- Sir Jim Ratcliffe did declare his interest. Uh, we have seen this before, maybe not to this extent, but the Glazers are very stubborn. They can be very obdurate and there is safe distance between them and Manchester United supporters, which is the Atlantic Ocean. Joel Glazer has not been to United game in nearly three and a half years. It was a jolt to see Avram Glazer and, and Edward Glazer at the Brighton home game two weeks ago. They pick up their semi-annual dividend as as dreadful as Manchester United have been. And as, you know, as a brand, they are not... Um, they're not as uh, as great as they used to be, but they are still a very lucrative cash cow for for the Glazer siblings, and they, they have no problem taking their semi annual dividend. Uh, you mentioned the, the point earlier that uh, the long contracts were supposed to be the hallmark of the Woodward era, and yet here here we are, and the same thing has continued. Who's making that decision now? Is that is that Richard Arnold who, who was actually supposed to? It looked like separate the football and the the business, um, or is it? Uh, is it John Murta? Who's who's saying, yeah, actually, the right thing to do here is to give Casemiro five years and to give anybody who's coming in a longer-term contract than is generally the norm at the moment in the football world? Arnold would always have to request sign-off from Tampa and the family and mainly Joel Glazer on, on a signing on or a new contract. And you look at the... The picture last week, United had one of their worst defeats in, in maybe 50 years uh, at Brentford, getting in a Real Madrid midfielder who nobody really expected to leave Real Madrid this summer, who only signed a new contract at Real Madrid last year, signing him on a £70 million deal, uh, which it could eventually rise to, is good PR. Uh, it's it's a midfield signing. United, amazingly, had gone four years without signing an out-and-out central midfielder. So... 
at the end of the day, it's it's clear who had who over a barrel there. I mean, when I mean Casemiro is getting potentially a five-year contract if if that plus one is is extended, that there's not another elite club in Europe that would have paid sixty million rising to ten million for a midfielder who had fallen down the pecking order at Real Madrid, and there's no way another elite club in Europe would have made that player one of their highest earners. That that's the desperate position Manchester United are in. The positive United is that they are signing a defensive midfielder and they are signing one of the best defensive midfielders. Whether he can maintain that level in the Premier League in a midfield that really is is, is nigh on non-existent, that, that doesn't have the any half the passing quality of the midfielders he was accustomed to playing with at Real Madrid. He had two of the greatest passers in, in, in probably the game's history in Tony Cruz and Luka Modric, either side of him. At United, he could have Scott McTominay and Fred either side of him on a on a weekly basis. In the case of Fred, he at least is you know, he's familiar with him. They, they do play regularly together for Brazil. They are their starting midfielders. They actually keep Fabinho out of the side. But speaking to uh, a, a, an agency contact last week, they they flagged that Casemiro's running stats are not particularly great. Which again, you, you it's not a great surprise. Uh, La Liga is quite a sedate pace. Real Madrid are bound to control most of the games that they play in. Um, I mean, I was told that his running stats are worse than Scott McTominay's, but that's 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 to be expecting that the Premier League is a much more frenetic pace. And also McTominay can be so careless with the ball, he ends up having to chase shadows. Uh, Samuel, what did, just to clarify like uh, the, the mood on the ground in terms of the game tonight, I mean, what are we expecting in terms of the atmosphere and the the sort of the, the talk of protest or unrest or like what what is the sense of what's going to happen here tonight it's difficult to predict it's it's going to be quite virulent outside the ground ultimately this is a sold out game so despite pleas on social media to empty old trafford and for it to look quite sparse i think that would be a surprise in that it's one of the biggest games in in world football the demand to be at this game is still extremely high I think because of the the fixture and what happened with the the Super League protest in May of last year, some parallels have been drawn with that. But in that case, when United fans were were clear, well, a militant faction was certainly hell-bent on getting that game postponed. It was easier to do that then because it was a game that was played behind closed doors. Tens of thousands will be driving or travelling to Old Trafford tonight with every intention of clicking through the turnstiles. A lot of the protesters outside will be ticketless, which isn't a problem whatsoever. Some supporters are just disenchanted with following United. They don't want to pay the Glazer family. Um, that's that's perfectly principled. And I think a lot of the fans who are outside the Norwich game in April during those uh, quite, quite captivating protests were ticketless. And it's bound to appeal to them. But as far as tonight goes, I don't think the Casemiro signing is necessarily going to dilute the protests from those who, who've organised this. But unfortunately, these protests, since they restarted or started by a particular group in April, they have been quite ineffectual. And when the, the attempt to walk out on a certain minute, I think during the Brentford game or the Chelsea game towards the end of the season, uh, you, you had the banner up, and the minute was the minute was still listed on the scoreboard that they were still actually inside the stadium. So, uh, that, I don't think they're re- ever really going to unsettle the Glazers. When, when the green and gold protest starts in 2010, which did have genuine momentum and 
really did become a movement for the four or five months that uh, it was sustained by the supporters. The Glazers actually became more present and uh, attended more games at Old Trafford because they felt as though they wanted to front up and show that they could take on these supporters and that they wouldn't be cowed by them. That's not going to happen now. Um, but as I said, Edward Glazer and, and Avram Glazer were at the Brighton game the other week and they had little or no problem getting into the stadium. Whereas when the first time uh, the three siblings uh, visited Old Trafford after the takeover, I think it was Joel Avram and, and Brian, they needed a police escort to get out because there was an angry mob outside. Things have definitely changed on that front. Uh, to talk about the football for a change, which I know is kind of remarkable that um, there's a, going to be a match that happens. Uh, what do you expect from Manchester United tonight? And what do you expect from Eric Ten Hag tonight? Well, the players want a more pragmatic approach, which is almost an admission of defeat that they, they don't have the skill set to execute his instructions or his game plan, which is why United need more signings beyond Casemiro, which is why Ten Hag has been targeting players he's he's familiar with. I mean, Casemiro, United tried to say he was high on their list of midfield targets, but I mean, sometimes you think, do they think we were born yesterday, that they were holding out for Frankie de Jong all summer because the manager really wanted him. And in the end, they've just had to walk away because they didn't make any headway there in the last six, six weeks because of the wage deferral issue that De Jong has got at Barcelona. And really, from the outset, that was a deal that was fraught with problems because De Jong never really wanted to join Manchester United. So they've had to uh, rejig their plans. And although Ten Hag insists that, yeah, that the plans haven't changed at all, De Jong and Casemiro are markedly different players. And the way that midfield was exposed by Brighton, then even more so against Brentford. A defensive midfielder was always going to be non-negotiable, but it's not a coincidence that United have moved with uncharacteristic alacrity to get Casemiro in. Unfortunately, he's for them, he's not going to be available tonight. He's, he's still not been fully signed up. So it's, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see what Ten Hag does with the midfield because he does not have the personnel there to, to stymie Liverpool. Liverpool have got some injury issues. They've not looked quite themselves in their first two games. Van Dijk has looked particularly vulnerable, which, which is unlike him. So there are, there are, there's some hope for United in that sense. But as far as the Liverpool midfield goes and Thiago not being available, the three midfielders who lined up in the 5-0 thrashing of United last season are available and they are still a far better team than United. It's a game that loomed rather ominously at the start of the season for United fans after Brighton and Brentford. It's it's looked like a terrifying prospect, but the fact that Liverpool haven't looked quite themselves and there has to, it can't get any worse. You would think from United's perspective after that Brentford game that does offer United fans some hope but again, I, I can't settle on a, a team where I think that United could absolutely certainly take on Liverpool toe-to-toe or give them a good game. Um, it's, it's, as, it's, it's a big test of what Ten Hag does and whether he does actually um, compromise his own ethos and, and, and principles and rein in what he wants to do because United are coming up against a team that have had their number in recent seasons. Mm. Like what is compromising his principles in this game? Like what is an approach that would represent that? Well, he tried to suggest that playing out from the back was, was naive at Brentford, which it certainly was, and that he wanted United to draw them in and then go long. And 
I think Ten Hag, is, he told us in pre-season, I mean, that there's more than one way to skin a cat, effectively, in that he's not just hell-bent on playing um, beautiful total football or playing you know, the, the Cruyff way or, or the Ajax way. I think he's he's more than aware that in the Premier League, you're going to come up against various opponents and you, you, you will have to adapt your style from time to time. And he showed at Ajax that he's not got one fixed formation. His, his first good team there, they played in the 4-2-3-1. His last good team that won the league title last season it was more of a 4-3-3 and they had the, the focal point with Sebastian Haller up front, which is why it's, it's always been a bit perplexing that people suggest that Cristiano Ronaldo can't play in a Ten Hag team when Sebastian, ha- Sebastian Haller did that, Ajax last season. But with this game tonight, he, he can't play McTominay and Fred because that, that was exposed last season and it was exposed in the very first game of this season. Uh, there are players in the attack. Bruno Fernandes has got a hell of a lot worse since he unsurprisingly got a new contract uh, in, in April, a, a contract that only added one year onto his ex, onto its expiry date, but he got a big pay rise. Wayne Rooney said in his Sunday Times column that he wouldn't start Marcus Rashford. There'll be a hell of a lot of United fans that agree with that because Rashford has just looked out of sorts for 18 months, it must be said now, at, at club level. Um, but the alternatives, the, the strength and depth, it's just not there. So... Ten Hag is limited as to what he can do. If if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was in this position, he would probably be, go to a back three. And yesteryear, he'd have ground out a pretty commendable draw, which was the case, I think, in the October 2019 game when he was under the cosh. When that knack of getting big performances when he was on the rocks uh, deserted him last season, that's that's when it spiralled and, and he ended up get, getting the sack by United. Whether Ten Hag actually follows the Solskjaer blueprint will be interesting because if he does, it, it, you know, I, I'm sure there'll be some grumbles from supporters that will start to feel, well, is, is this guy any different or different enough to what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer does? Because Solskjaer said himself last season he did not want to play with a back three. He didn't want to have this almost defeatist air about United going into games, but felt that he had to because... They were coming up against such better sides in, in his final games. Liverpool and City were two of the teams he came up against in his last four or five weeks. It's still, I mean, Ten Hag is nowhere near that territory yet, but the circumstances are somewhat similar going into this Liverpool game because United are coming off the back of such a, a dreadful defeat to Brentford. So it, whether he's more pragmatic or not remains to be seen, but that's something that the players would would favour. He could, he could easily pick three at the back, right? That might get him out of some of the short-term issues uh, around Maguire and Martinez Heights and, you know, give him a little bit of betting in opportunity. And, uh, you know, would a nil-all draw tonight not be something that Man United fans are like, well, we've steadied the ship. I think they would snap your hand off at a nil-nil draw just because it would you know, halt the, the the negativity that has started since the, the first first weekend of the season. I, I can't quite remember the last time Ten Hag would have played with a back three, but certainly when, when Martinez came in, it, it was a question to ask just because it was a huge investment in a, in a defender. They'd made huge investments in uh, far more esteemed defenders in, in recent years in Maguire, who is, is still a world record for, for a defender, his transfer fee of 80 million and, and Rafael Varane coming in last year. But 
Ten Hag was quite clear to us in in Melbourne during pre-season that he saw Martinez as someone to come in and strengthen the team and Maguire was the first choice. What's interesting is that Ten Hag is, is giving serious consideration to drop in Maguire tonight. It's still unclear if he has taken that decision and followed through with it. But it is something that's on his mind, given how, how poorly Maguire has started the season. And Varane has to come in this evening. If he does go with a back three, I don't think it would be a major surprise. I don't think he wants to crush Martinez's confidence so quickly. Martinez, of course, can play as defensive midfield, uh, which might be a stopgap option for tonight's game, uh, just because United are going to need someone to hold the fort there against one of the best attacks in football. OK, Liverpool won't have Jota or who I believe is, is still injured and, and obviously Darwin Nunez is suspended, but the firepower they have is still pretty pretty ominous for United and they put nine goals past them last season. So United are going to need that extra security. They can't be as loose as they were against Brighton, never mind Brentford, when you had Christian Eriksen effectively doubling as a defensive midfielder, which was an experiment that not many people could remember from his Tottenham days. And as is often the case with uh, such, such such experiments in, in football, it didn't work. No, it definitely... Uh, it- <laughs> Famously, it didn't at this stage. Uh, some quickfire questions around transfers. Is Marcus Rashford for sale? Is he? Is, is there a possibility he leaves in the next 10 days? United would say no. I think it's too much of a stretch for him to go in the next 10 days. Uh, PSG did meet with his brother, but they already feel as though they're being used as a negotiation tactic uh, by the brother to get Rashford a new contract at Manchester United, which a lot of United fans would probably laugh at the prospect because like a lot of players, pretty much all the players who are technically out of contract next year but have the plus one option on their deals, United fans would argue that none of them deserve a new contract. And that's the invidious position United are in because they are either going to have to give him a new contract or they're going to have to sell him because letting Marcus Rashford go on a free is just something that they can't entertain. I think he would be 26 at that age. I think with Pogba, it was just about you know, understandable because of the way it had unraveled. But I don't think it would get that uh, that that course. I don't think the fans would turn as as virulently against Marcus Rashford as they did with Paul Pogba. Is Jaden Sancho going to be an Eric Ten Hag player? Do you think? I think he's probably one of the players who's got a better chance of it. But one of the issues I certainly had with him when United signed him was that he was used to an environment where there was no pressure and he's gone into the most intense pressure cooker environment in football probably and during pre-season he was excellent he was United's best player but then as soon as the competitive games started as you've seen he's he's regressed and that might be the issue with Sancho in that I don't think it's an issue of ability but being in that pressure cook environment at Manchester United, it, it rumbles players very, very quickly. And last season, it rumbled almost everyone in that squad. And so far, he's not really shown that he's got the nous to to cope with the pressure. But ability-wise, I think he's he's certainly one of the players who's who's likelier to thrive under Ten Hag. Cristiano's uh, cryptic Instagram post about "I'll tell the truth in fourteen days" was that like because he'll be somewhere else or was that because the window will be closed and it'll be too late for anything to happen did you have any read on that and does it have any implications about where he's playing football in a couple of weeks 
Well, an, an interview has not been promised to me or any of my colleagues, so I'd be fascinated to see who, who does end up having that discussion with him. But I think that's the, the, the most, uh, the, the clearest hint yet from him um, that he, he wants to leave. I think it's the closest he's ever going to come to publicly saying that he wants to leave United anyway. But it, it doesn't really help matters. Gary Neville said it last week. If what, Why has he got to wait two weeks? He can He can give that conversation now. If he wanted to have that discussion now, that would be... You know, ending the the debate or, or any any sort of uh, rumblings over his future because I think it'd be confirmation that that he is staying, but he's deciding to wait until the transfer window closes, which would again indicate that he's he's holding out for George Mendes, his agent, to make the impossible possible and, and get him a, a, an agreeable move somewhere. I was going to say it's more than likely he'll interview himself on one of his own channels, but actually he could get George Mendes to interview him, and in, you know, one of those They'll hard-hitting. Find someone. Yeah. I mean, it's just a perfectly yeah. normal Manchester United story, isn't it? To have a player promising and tell all interview in two weeks. Yeah, this is this is when normal. He be a United normal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, uh, you must feel like you're somehow in an episode of Succession most of the time, Samuel. Either that or I've, it's certainly in recent weeks it's felt like I've started writing for Private Eye, uh, writing about a bid for Marco Arnautovic and United comparing him to uh, players from yesteryear who they deemed successes, who were actually not successes. I mean, Arnautovic was likened to Laurent Blanc as a pragmatic short-term signing as if, I mean, for people who can't remember, Laurent Blanc was, was a world-class player when he was at Inter Milan and Barcelona. He was certainly not at Manchester United, it was one of the worst pieces of business that Sir Alex Ferguson ever did in, in selling Yapstam and bringing him in. So uh, it, it has felt extremely surreal. Uh, and, and as I said, with the Casemiro deal, that that just seemed fanciful. I think speaking to colleagues, we all thought, well, yeah, come August 31st, Real Madrid will be announcing that Casemiro has got a new contract. But amazingly, United have got this one over the line, which again just highlights the desperation at the club. If you had to guess, how many more signings will there be in this window, do you think? Uh, I, I'd, I'd say a minimum one, but they would want to. I think they want to back up goalkeeper still, which is not a particularly, um, you know, that would not be a significant signing. But they, I, I still think they will get another forward in just because they, they do not have established depth in that squad. And the Ronaldo situation, uh, they, they need someone who's going to offer them a different attacking outlet. But if it is Anthony, there's no guarantee that he's going to be a reliable source of goals. And that's the problem they've got with the forwards who Ten Hag settled on in pre-season, Marshall, Sancho and, and Rashford. None of them are dependable goal scorers. The only dependable goal scorer in the squad wants out. Samuel, great stuff. Thanks a million. Enjoy the game tonight. Cheers. Thank you very much. Nice to be on. Samuel Lucker is there giving us his thoughts on the game tonight. What do you think is going to happen? Like, I think you, you can debate it and you can find reasons to believe... Liverpool won't win but you just come out to the conclusion Liverpool are just going to win aren't they well I mean they just have been so bad in the two games well sorry they haven't they they just couldn't score well, they were dreadful the against day. Fulham and, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're, no they were like very bad against Fulham um, if you're talking about Liverpool like Manchester United has been established bad you know like Liverpool did play okay in parts against Palace particularly with 10 men so you sort of just think they have to like you're looking at the names on the crest as opposed to like the the football teams on the pitch and if you look at the football teams on the pitch you're thinking well surely Liverpool win this game but like you say most weeks with Liverpool and Man City they'll, they'll win most games and Manchester United are just one of the good chance for Liverpool to 
get those two points that they dropped uh, back. The, 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 the momentum was back in the title race, you know, the, in, in week three. Yeah, but I mean, it is true. Like, City weren't going to drop any points and now they have. So we have to redraw all our boundaries. Uh, Carl Milani is with us at 8.42 this morning. Carl, good morning to you. How are you? How are you, lads? How's it going? What's the crack? It's, um, uh, we didn't even mention Sam Bennett. Sam Bennett can't get in the green. Two back-to-back stage wins in yeah, the Welter. that's probably yeah. my fault, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, he, he totally should be in there, of course. It's just maybe, maybe you just need more. Like when, when you have the athletes and people doing stuff, you need more green and, and less red. Maybe we could just like uh, retire the amber, you know. Yeah. It doesn't really exist that much in Irish traffic lights anyway. It's true. It's, it's gone yeah. very quickly. It's yeah. basically half green. Yeah. You just yeah. drive through anyway, don't you? Or you try to? Not, not me. Well, you're, supposed have, you're supposed to have a look first, Carl. <laughs> Depends on. Hmm. Depends on. Uh, right. Sorry, where are you starting? Uh, let's start with uh, a recap just of yesterday's uh, Premier League. So the Newcastle manager, Eddie Howe, says uh, a point was the least his side deserved from yesterday's meeting with Manchester City. It finished 3 all at St. James's Park. Newcastle led by three goals to one early in the second half there. Elsewhere, Chelsea suffered a 3-0 defeat at Leeds. Brighton were 2-0 winners over West Ham. Manchester United, meanwhile, will look to register their first points of the Premier League season tonight. They take on Liverpool at Old Trafford, where kickoff is at eight. Here at home yesterday, Shamrock Rovers moved seven. Seven points clear at the top of the SSE Artricity League Premier Division. They beat second place Dundalk by three goals to nil in Tallaght. In athletics, Mark English is now a two-time European bronze medalist after his last podium finish in 2014. The Donegal native came home in third in last night's men's 800 metres final in Munich. Sarah Lavin finished fifth in the women's 100 metres hurdles final after clocking a new personal best in the semi-final. And Efren Gide was sixth in the final of the men's 10,000 metres with Hiko Tonoso in 18th. Shane Lowry agonisingly missed out on a place in this week's Tour Championship last night. He finished in a tie for 12th on 800 par at the BMW Championship, but it meant he was 31st in the FedEx Cup standings after last night's event. Only the top 30 get into the season finale. Rory McIlroy is 7th in the overall standings. He finished on 900 par at the BMW Championship and in a tie for 8th. And Patrick Cantley won by a shot there on 14 under. Uh, good news for Porrick Harrington. He's celebrating another Champions Tour title. He carded a final round of 500 par 67 to land the Dick's Sporting them. Goods Open. Every week. I actually, I, mean, it's, I actually had no idea about that. Like it's just, it's just that the Champions Tour sort of exists in a place where it just exists a slightly a little below the news cycle but Harrington is just every like, week he's I mean I'm not sure is he, he's not quite at the stage where he's making more money from that than he did in his career because he did play in that high earning time like, I mean a decade ago guys were making more money in the Champions Tour than they ever did yeah in the in their in their life, whereas the post Tiger era money was pretty good, right? Yeah. I don't think Harrington's collecting checks that he didn't. I'd say they're still pretty meaty. Checks oh, I'd though, say they're right? substantial. Yeah, they're meaty, yeah. but I think for Harrington, it's more about the competitive element. He just loves competing, and uh, obviously, you've got the major championships and the Champions Tour as well. That's his second uh, title of the season, I think. But it's you know, it was three rounds. Uh, it helps. But it, I was watching a little bit of the highlights from it this morning. You got like Miguel Angel Jimenez, uh, Stephen Ames, I think, was there. As well, there are it was quite a good standard. Yeah, quite a good standard. Three hundred and fifteen grand Harrington won for. Um, I mean, it's not to be sniffed at. No, no. <laughs> for his week's work. <laughs> yeah, like, is this his third title this year, including the the major? Did he did he win it at U.S. Open? Yeah, yeah. So like, I mean, he's had a really good season. But it's uh, for a guy like Harrington, I think it's just to get the competitive juices flowing uh, week on week. It's a big thing because realistically, a lot of those guys can't compete in terms of. 
driving distances and stuff with the guys on the regular tour. Dan yeah, Clark he, is back too. Yeah, yeah. like because Clark was a, the, the senior British Open, right? Yeah, he won yeah. that. Like, yeah, and I don't know. He maybe would people have thought him less likely to succeed? You, you can see with Harrington's mentality why he would keep going, keep going. But like sometimes you watch, I watched the Harrington one, and there was this very unheralded American pro in it who had been very average career but then all of a sudden they just peak like the later developer who at 50 suddenly this is the, the this is their moment like this is the peak of their career and you have the other guys who are just sort of like this is an exhibition Harrington has already won this year in 11 events 2 million dollars and he's second on the money list um, on the Charles Schwab Cup money list which obviously is not quite the same as the uh, so there, it's not that's not bad uh, Darren Clark by the way has won eight hundred grand this year, which I'd say is more money than he's won since the year after he won the Open, because he basically wasn't making cuts anymore. No, it's true. It probably yeah. you make a lot of money being Ryder Cup captain, don't you? But that's basically the one. Uh, uh, yeah, you, you pick up money on yeah, the prize money. Yeah. yeah, the prize money. No, yeah. of course. Yeah, different. Yeah, but it, I think you're right there. And and for guys that are like 45, 46, it does give them something to aim for when they do get to that fifty mark. Mm. Uh, to try and stay that little bit more competitive but um, yeah fair play to Porrick Harrington he was three shots clear of uh, Tongshai GID in second uh, last night in the cycling just to mention Sam Bennett of course holds the green jersey in the Vuelta España after three stages of the race he took his second victory of this year's event with yesterday's sprint finish that made him only the second Irishman after Sean Kelly to win ten stages in Grand Tours the riders are taking a rest day today and return to action uh, tomorrow it's expected the new Mayo senior football manager will be confirmed tonight it's understood a meeting of the county board is set to take place with clubs due to ratify James Horan's successor. Interviews for the position are believed to have taken place over the weekend. Kevin McStay and Ray Dempsey among those in the running for the position alongside Declan Shaw and Mike Solon. Can I just, so I'm looking at Harrington's uh, and this is a website I've never used before so it might be inaccurate but this is like Harrington's third most successful or fourth most successful year in his career in terms of career earnings. Well there you go. prize money sorry. Now obviously when he's winning he's getting massive bonuses for winning the Open and winning the, the PGA Tour but uh, the PJ Majors uh, 1.8 million dollars in 03-04 2.6 in 04-05 and uh, 2.6 in 06-07 2.6 in 08-09 and that, they're the only 2 million so like mm. you know mm. it's been worth his while to dust off the club oh, and get I mean, the lessons. no no financially it's absolutely worth it like and, I mean Langer like Bernard Langer went in and just he's probably one who probably made more money I'd say in the champion third than he yeah. did Langer finished yeah. uh, Langer finished sixth joint sixth with Darren Clark yesterday to pick up 70 grand <laughs> he's still going Langer he's, he's just like he's still churning it out every week he's just like his his current account is in, in thriving tied six thriving finished yeah. with a 68 for 71 grand thanks very much yeah I mean it's it's a nice way it's a nice way to live Carl, I mean I you, tell you that's, you, I was just you must say. be thinking about this I'm going like, I've got a can, you can properly golf right okay he, oh god no. yeah Not champions tour level well I mean I've got well, 20, you've got, you, how many years have you got to get to 50 22 here? years you just want to peak at that stage 22 years practice 5 days a week be ready to go you'll have your 10,000 hours done in no time yeah yeah, I tell you, for that money, might be bad. One good finish, one good finish. You just need to go into the bar grand. the night before, like you know, buy a couple of drinks for the lads. They'll they'll yeah, totally yeah. switch off. They'll be relaxed, you know. Yeah, time to strike. Right. Let's see. Anything else? And just to men- yeah, I mentioned the Mayo manager's job, and then there's racing in Ballarobe this evening. First of eight, there goes to post at half past four. But it should be interesting to see who gets the Mayo job. Yeah. What, so what time do you think we're going to get it? Well, they reckon there's a county board meeting tonight at about seven or eight. It'll have leaked before that, surely. Mm, I'm not sure. I think they're determined that it doesn't leak. Okay. 
Uh, that's the sense that I get. Um, Twitter is a flame, as you would expect. Yeah, so. it's going to be very interesting. But uh, I think the quality of candidates that they have for that job is fantastic. And clearly, it's going to have a knock-on impact on other counties who are waiting to see who falls out from who's available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was talk that uh, Stephen Rochford was being linked with possibly Roscommon. Um, I'm not sure what the the lie of the land is there. There hasn't been much talk about the Roscommon job. Pat Flanagan, I think, is in the mix there as well. Um, and obviously Donegal there's been nothing on the Donegal no, job no that's quiet and that's the one yeah. I think is probably most linked mm. so we shall see and we'll obviously be talking about that in more detail on tomorrow's show it's 8.50 a reminder OTBAM brought to you live each morning with Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day let's cross over now we've heard from the Manchester United side of things with Sammy Luckers it's time for us to get the Liverpool view ahead of this game tonight Phil Thompson joins us Phil we're live good morning to you how are you getting on? good morning very good a little bit late getting in this morning. Flight was delayed from Tenerife. Um, but looking forward to our chat this morning. Tell me, what's your level of expectation for a big performance from Liverpool tonight, given the stop-start nature to the season that they've had so far? Yeah, I, I think our boys are going to be up for it. My worry is, is Manchester United will turn up tonight. And you know that for how long. Depends on how the score goes. But I'm quite sure... Listen, it's football. Manchester United, um, it's still, I don't care what people say, uh, it is the biggest fixture in world football. No matter where the teams are positioned in the league, they'll be up for it. They'll be absolutely flying. That first 15, 20 minutes is going to be incredible. But I feel our lads are up for it as well. To talk about the two draws, um, you know, being four points behind City. We see what this Premier League's like with Manchester City's game yesterday. So I am looking forward to it. I'm up for it. I think the players will be as well. The, the two performances haven't been the same, I don't think. The, the first game, they kind of they weren't very good. The second game, they were good but couldn't score. And that, that's different, right? Because you, you can... F- Agree. No, no, without a doubt, it's a fair point. I don't think I spoke to you, didn't I, after the Fulham game? And it wasn't good. There was a lot of complacency in there. But the, the Crystal Palace game, if people seen that match as I did, it was it was very, very good. You're quite right. We just could not score. You always run that risk because you have so much of the ball. You play that very high line. A good ball, a through ball, can cut your openings. A hard put it away really well. But the overall performance was very, very good. It's just it was it was one of those games that we've all seen, guys. But if if we turn up and we have that again, Man United are they're under a little bit of pressure, aren't they? under a little bit, a lot of pressure. I think they're going to have to have a go. And that means that they're going to have to come out a little bit. As we've seen with Fulham did have a go, but Palace sat back, defended deep. I think Manchester United are under so much pressure. I don't think the fans would accept them just sitting back and let Liverpool just have the ball for 65, 70% of the, of the game. So, like, you know, can Liverpool use that to their advantage? Their sort of knowledge of the Manchester United's position coming into it. Like, do you almost use your experience to anticipate that there's going to be a strong fifteen, twenty minutes? You sort of, I don't know, Liverpool ease their way into the game, and then sort of, sort of turn the screw as time goes on. No, without a doubt, I, I think that'll be the mentality. It, Liverpool are trying to keep possession to draw Manchester United forward to to make the play sort of be quite open. 
Manchester United will be nervous. They won't want to get caught. They will know Liverpool are, are better. They are better in possession. So if they go looking for it, Ronaldo plays, he will be on fire early on. He will rush. He will try and close down. I don't think he understands the closing down. As great a player that he is. And Liverpool can get through that first line of defence. But that first 15 or 20 minutes will be absolutely hectic. Yes, we know about a demonstration. That will motivate them to, a, to a, the fans to an extent. So I just think Liverpool are going to have to ride it out. I think once that, that passes by, I think and hope that there's only going to be one winner. Phil, does the City result actually allow Liverpool to be a bit more relaxed tonight? And um, in a curious way, uh, it, it ratchets down the pressure and so should actually give them the opportunity to perform more relaxed, more in themselves, a bit more confidence and, and like, you know, do you know what I mean? In a weird way, it shouldn't have any impact, but it does. I, I exactly. And, and listen, these guys now have played together for for quite a while. They, they know what big games consist of, how it goes. But yeah, they'll probably be sitting there and, and looked at it and said, oh, well, there you go. Everybody was having a go at Liverpool because they drew it at, at Fulham, because they drew against Palace. Well, there you go. City have gone to Newcastle and what a game it was. And the game sort of, you know, it ended in a draw. They were 3-1 down and full credit to them, but probably at 3-3 they've come in and they've probably felt like it was a win, Man City. But it's still the point total. So, yes, Liverpool, will, a little bit ago, well, there you go. The, the, the league can be quite open. It's not as over and done with as what people may think. And what what does that do? Does it just allow you to maybe risk a pass that you wouldn't have done? Or does it have any impact? No, not on that side of it. I think it's psychologically the, the players will be up for this. As I said, this is a huge game, no matter where it sits. You've seen how Liverpool approached it last year for the 90 minutes. And then at Anfield, they, would, they were up for it. After winning 5-0 at Old Trafford, they were still up for it. And listen, I played in games where we were always, we were the top dog and Manchester United came and it was huge. And then I've seen for many years when Manchester United had their great sides. They were looking at Liverpool and they were seventh or eighth place in the, in the league. And they didn't seem to have that motivation as much, but they were such a good, good side that they turned us over time to particularly in the Roy Evans era. So it was like that. But I think now the both teams, huge respect for each other. And I just think with all that, the hype that's gone round this game, I think Liverpool will be up for it as much as Man United. So what team are you looking to see on the pitch tonight then, Phil? I mean, Nunes is suspended. Firmino seems to be available. That seems to be the chat. I mean, is it a straightforward swap or I- are you expecting to see something different? You know something, guys? I, I just feel Firmino's made for this game against Manchester United. He draws people in. Whether it's Maguire, you know, Maguire might not play. Is is a ploy to get into his head? Um, whoever it is who's playing at centre back to draw him in to that sort those areas. Bobby Firmino's touch is always good. He'll be motivated. So I think this is a good fit for the game. You know, the, what happened with Nunes was wrong. and But I think it just fits into Liverpool's pattern of play a little bit better for this for this match. So him dropping in there, getting that movement off with Diaz, Mo Salah, 
I think it's going to help us. Who do you want to see in midfield? Do you know what? It's 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 a big question. I thought Harvey Elliott was absolutely fantastic against um, uh, Crystal Palace. He might have played his way into this into this game early on. Um, I do want to see Henderson back. That is an absolute must. So it'll be Harvey Elliott. Be lovely to see the young man how he he takes this game. But at the moment, with no Thiago, I think Harvey Elliott with his touch, I think he he could probably start with Hendo and with Fabinho. And that team, like on paper, is a far superior team to whatever Manchester United put out. And so you you have to, like we were talking about this earlier, Dan was making you know the evidence of the teams. That's what should make your mind up when you're thinking about what's going to happen. Notwithstanding all the outside noise around Ten Hag and his team selection. Liverpool should be favourites and they should be looking to go and punch their rivals in the mouth tonight, right? Absolutely. If, l- listen, if the both teams, Manchester United, as you're saying with that pressure, Liverpool are the better team, without a doubt. If we play our proper game, if Manchester United come out and have a go and they try, because that has been one of the main problems. They don't know whether to stick or twist to try to hype press, which they've not been very good at and don't understand it, for 90 minutes. And if they try and come and have a go and go toe-to-toe, they know they could get hit. But then they know the fans will be demanding. Then if they're doing that and reluctantly people are stepping out, Liverpool will cut them to bits. That's what I'm saying here. The early pressure from Manchester United after 15, 20 minutes. If Liverpool ride that, don't concede a goal because the goal will only motivate Manchester United then till half-time. I just see Liverpool running out. We will play our normal game. We won't change. And we can keep possession for fun. And it'll be interesting to see how Manchester United react. I know you're making the point about the potential for whatever happens pre-match outside and that feeding into their the team's desire to go out and be aggressive and, and try and do something. But we were talking earlier on about the, the game that... Um, Solskjaer picked three at the back and defended and they got a draw in 2019 does it you know if you're, if you're the Man United manager and you're desperate for something here you, maybe you pick three centre-backs and and you go ultra-defensive it's at Old Trafford and that is the problem um, Ollie can try and do that and he, he was he was in a difficult position and you think what way do I go here and if I sit back it doesn't add up. At this moment, Manchester United, I think, are in that difficult position. What does Ten Hag do? Does he does he say, right, we're going to go for it? I don't think they have the players to do the high press. And I just think they're in such a, a difficult mode that that will impact the way they play. They know what the fans are like. They know there'll be uh, the problem with the, the demonstration and what guys that comes and that they were hoping if Rashford plays Rashford absolutely turns up if it goes his way he'll he'll give 90 minutes he'll be dashing everywhere if it's the Marcus Rashford that we've seen for the last sort of nine months if it goes wrong after 15 minutes a lot of the players can disappear Hmm. Did Liverpool? I mean, if you're a Liverpool defender, do you want to see Ronaldo's name on the team sheet tonight? In the in the context of what you mentioned there, you know, he maybe not be best suited to the sort of the pressing that they might need to do. So, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a strange one to be thinking of that way. But it, 
it, it is a strange one because you're looking at this guy. I think he has to play. Uh, for all those problems, what I've mentioned there, he, more than anybody, if you do have one chance, you're likely to put it away. Sancho Ram, uh, Rashford maybe need a few chances to actually score not with Ronaldo. And I think he might pick him with that, just that little bit of a thought. We might not get many chances. He is the one who's more likely to take it. So it is a difficult one. Um, and I think he's got a few sort of team selections to, to hopefully get right. The, well, not <laughs> the The Maguire situation, right? Um they obviously view Maguire as a long-term asset. They decided to give him the captaincy during the summer, which maybe, you know, I think even at the time people were wondering, is that necessarily the right thing? Uh, and now there's talk in the local press and the, the Manchester Evening News that he's going to be dropped for the game tonight. We'll see when the team gets named, if his, his name is in the team sheet. What do you make of that handling of that situation at the moment? And what do you think is his future? I think it's very, very, very difficult. I think at the moment it's hard for him to get out of this rut, isn't it? Harry Maguire likes to defend deep. Harry's not the, the greatest of pace and he likes to sort of get the players around him, um, play what they call a low block. He's more than happy to sit on the edge of his box and play that way. But that is not the nature of this, as this modern game as we're seeing it. It's all about putting pushing up, pressing as a unit, the defence pushing close to the midfield, the midfield to the forwards. Harry doesn't like to get caught out. And I think he knows that, which is creating a problem with his mind. He is a good footballer. He is a fine player, but he is in that predicament. I would think at this moment, as good a player he is, if there was a, a big offer on the table for him, I think Man United Ten Hag would take it because that would sort his problem out. And I would think that Harry Maguire would think, I need a new start. Maybe a new way of playing will suit my game. Because he, he struggled for quite a bit. Always played well for England, I have to say, because I think he is a fine player. But in this modern day, with his lack of pace, he too often gets caught out. And his confidence, his confidence is absolutely at a low ebb. All the talk won't do him any favours. I said that Ten Hag might have called him in and going, you know, a couple of days ago, listen, son, don't tell anybody, but you're playing. All this, all the flack that you're getting, you have my trust. And that might help him tonight. All right. Phil, give us your prediction for tonight. What do you think is actually going to happen? I I, I see it. Um, the way we've started defensively, I see is conceding. But I think we will run out 3-1 winners. Enjoy the game, Phil. Great stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. You too. So Onchian's at that game tonight for us and uh, we'll be reporting in the aftermath uh, about the pre-match and then obviously whoever we can talk to afterwards as well. Um, it's, it's an interesting game. Yeah, I mean like and sort of Phil makes the point there there, there is always that thought like that you're galvanised in some way by um, the players that is Manchester United players are in some ways galvanised by the atmosphere and the sense of occasion and it's it's Liverpool and 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 that that's true. It can happen. Like I've seen it over the years. Say big Ireland games at the Aviva or something, where teams under the pressure, the managers under pressure, and you generally find that they they will start a game well, but it doesn't sustain for ninety minutes because it's sort of it papers over cracks for a period of time. It's very hard to paper over that those cracks against a pretty relentless opponent for for ninety minutes. And this group we have seen 
fail every test that they've had yeah. over the last four or five years. Unless they somehow score early. And I mean, I know there also have been games where they've scored and haven't won as well. But, <laughs> you know, if you suddenly have something to, to hold on to and it sort of plays, it sort of somehow manages to switch the pressure towards Liverpool or like, this team is terrible, we should be beating them. Um, let's, let's, force our, let's force things that we shouldn't be forcing here. But you sort of know from the quality of these top sides the top two sides they generally don't do that like like against Fulham the opening day they actually looked a bit gassed they just looked flat and stuff you know um, and they seemed to get a little bit of that spark back against Crystal Palace so you're sort of assuming I think Palace shocked. are quite good yeah no they are That's decent the as well yeah, yeah no and and they also had and we probably didn't get into it big time but fairly mentioned it at the end defensively I mean you could see the say the the Palace goal and that Liverpool the way they play are sometimes susceptible to a team that can break really well against them but you're talking about Manchester United this is my point about do you, you assume Ronaldo plays but you know would you like an on-song Rashford or someone breaking against that type of team of course on-song is the, is the key sort of phrase there Absolutely uh, one of the things that we didn't talk about yet so far at the weekend was um, West Ham yesterday being beaten at home by Brighton um, uh, like Brighton have started the season really well. They look like they have uh, a recruitment policy, an ability to generate funds, a good progressive young manager. You know, uh, they they have an identity. Um, is it possible that like West Ham last year was one of those like we talked about earlier? Uh, the the Irish teams doing well in those kind of it was just a surge of something. Mm. That happened because they, they're bottom of the table. They're actually the yeah. results were so bad yesterday that yeah um, and. Yeah, I mean, I know they, I know they played Man City. Like you know, they they so it's like that's that's an unfortunate one in terms of momentum for a season and stuff. But and Brighton are good, but yeah, like it's like a form of second season syndrome. Like in the sense that you have that good season where you overperform, um, or you sort of surprise people. And to be fair, I mean, they've had a couple of decent seasons back to back. Maybe it catches up to you. I'm just telling like, you mentioned West Ham. I'm just thinking that I can't unsee. Did you see that video of Declan Rice singing Ice Ice Baby no. over the weekend no. on A League of Their Own? Seeing chemical bands. With, with Mika Richards and Jamie Redknapp as his backing dancers. Was it good? I would have to say no. Is it worth watching though? It is worth watching in the where is this going, Declan? Like where 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 are you going here? Like I mean, I, I sort of sometimes feel that Declan Rice is is going to be presenting uh, like entertainment shows in around twenty years' time, or or, or maybe before that, or, or maybe before then. I don't know. I like he He's is meant to be a great pro who's not like, not a not a see not a drinker or anything like that if you know what I mean that maybe he actually lives quite a dedicated life and he's just he's showing this other side of his personality now going on the panel shows with his mates but um, I don't know why that sprung to mind but I mean maybe it's important that should be mentioned he should have been in the red really he, he needs a good season this year to justify whatever transfer is coming his way and to make sure that he is the one that because so uh, we, were, we were actually talking about this I think on uh, Colin Bowie we were talking about all the, all the uh, potential landing spots for him they all kind of have a solution in the spots that he mm. plays in. Calvin Phillips has just signed for Manchester City. Casemiro has now joined Manchester United. Uh, but you did mention what Kante Chelsea won. Chelsea was the one. I feel like he's going to end up at Chelsea. I think that like there's a. I think that story would probably appeal to him. Like he was released by him as a kid. JT's a big influence in his life. Maybe John Terry comes back as the manager and I just, signs him. I feel like Rice will end up there. That's where he'll go. Um, and he is a great player, you know, for notwithstanding the uh, the pretty terrible Ice Ice Baby. Uh, people maybe shouldn't watch. Speaking of um, English midfielders who are having a difficult time at the moment, um, Stephen Gerrard. 
Oh yeah. Is he just unlucky with the result at the weekend, or is he like completely out so of he's depth? Just unlucky or not good? I, I don't think he's out of his depth. He did a good job at Rangers. Like he did, and I know people would say, "Well, it was the Michael Beale angle," and and that's certainly problematic for him in terms of um, has he lost his power? You know, has he lost his <laughs> Samson style here? Has he been stripped of it? But um, I, you'd be probably he more var- you'd, be, it, you'd be following this closer. You'd be following this closer than me uh, in terms of the sort of the the mood music around it. Um, I know he wasn't doing an especially good job last year but I don't think he was doing a particularly bad one um, it felt like it was oh getting to know everybody this is you know a period of settling in and we'll see at the start of next season he'll have had his full pre-season he'll have had the communication in terms of what the recruitment is supposed to be and it looks uh, unplanned it looks like now very unlucky in that their key defensive signing has popped his Achilles and has gone for basically the season in uh, Carlos and that's very unfortunate because it looked like you know they needed somebody of that level of experience to just be in charge and that's gone yeah but I don't know they can't get over Luca Dean on 180 grand a week can't get over that well see I think the mid table of the Premier League is mad it gets hard like you have to be a really good manager to to somehow retain a degree of like freshness about what you're doing and direction because unless you have a massive massive injection of cash like you end up like managers get churned out after two three years because after a while your your deficiencies become apparent more regularly and people say well what do we do we just have to change this manager now he's very early in the day but the problem you have is someone like you've mentioned there Brighton and you have someone like Potter who's clearly doing an excellent job and has a purpose and his team has a bit of an identity and like that that's problematic if you're Stephen Gerrard or Frank Lampard or whoever it might be that probably is dealing with more money on on paper you know in terms of what you're spending yeah and that is that is the problem as much as I do have sometimes have a little bit of a sympathy for the managers because there's not a huge amount like you have to do exceptional things like Rogers did with Leicester for a while Moyes did with West Ham for a while and maybe it's just That's not sustainable yeah. and, and then it flattens out um, but obviously it's flattening out pretty early for him which might be a slight issue One quick point on Leicester there because you, you brought it up um, I have a lot of sympathy for uh, Brendan Rodgers a lot of people don't have any sympathy for Brendan yeah. Rodgers because he's got such a great welcome for himself and that's fair enough I, I understand his character rubs people up the wrong way but the job he did was absolutely spectacular you 100%. know winning a trophy getting them to within 45 yeah. minutes of Champions League qualification and now it appears as if the owners have decided to back away from investing the way they had previously what would have happened in previous years is they would have bought Fafana's replacement and then they would have sold Fafana that yeah. when it was being well run they bought the replacement they sold the guy massive profit the replacement stepped in like, you know, Fafana and Harry Maguire, everybody knew what the carousel was going to be. Uh, this time, they're not willing to... I don't understand why they don't just take the 60 or 70 million, whatever it is. They're haggling over four yeah. and a half, five million difference. Yeah. It, do, it does seem like, you've mentioned it there, it does seem like the owners, maybe it's just become a slightly a bit more detached. And like that is... I mean, you are in the Premier League now, you are very much reliant on the whims of your owners. And that time they missed they won the FA Cup but they missed out on the Champions League narrowly that possibly is their sliding doors moment 100% right OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you today OTB Gold is Colm Gooch Cooper at 1 o'clock Splunk is on at 3 our Culture Hall of Fame is the US office at 4 OTB Gold Joe meets Sherlock Nan and the show is live tonight from 7 with Joe Malloy in the hot seat you can follow OTB across our social channels subscribe to our YouTube channel and make sure you download our app 
for the latest and best sports content and analysis. Uh, Ronan Mullen is going to join us next to look back at a title fight that never quite reached the level that it might have done. That's next. OTB AM. 15 minutes past nine this morning here on OTB AM. We're looking back at the heavyweight fight between Alexander Usyk and Anthony Joshua. Uh, Ronan Mullen is here with us. Ronan, I went to bed straight as soon as the fight was over because I was absolutely shattered. Didn't even stay up for the... Because I just assumed it was a unanimous points decision with like a clear-cut four to six round victory for Usyk. You reach that point in life where you don't stay up for the events anymore, right? That's the thing. I stayed up for the whole fight. I mean, you did well then. It was an earlier start. It wasn't your 3am job. Yeah. It was the bit where it's like, well, I know, I know the result here, so I'm just going now. But actually, so you I, didn't even wait to hear the scores read out. No, because I didn't oh need God. to. Oh, but well, one of the judges was there going, "Well, uh, he's sitting there going, teaching well, me a lesson. What a fight from Joshua that was." So, I, explain how that happened. Explain how it was split, it was split decision. decision. Well, Glenn Feldman was accosted after the fight by Rob Tebbit, a roving journalist, who said, "What was the story there?" And Feldman essentially deferred to his supervisor, saying he couldn't really answer that question. So Feldman's the judge who scored it in yeah. favour of Joshua. Um, and, you know, the usual line of it's subjective, etc. And to be fair, Joshua boxed much better this time than he did in the last fight, I think. 7-5 um, Usyk, I can definitely see. I think that was around the score I had. And it's just, you can't make a case that Joshua won seven rounds. I, I think Steve Bunce is the only other person I've seen make that case and, and he was ringside, so much better va- vantage point than me or most of us. But a, a lone voice in the in the crowd there is Steve Bunce because I think most people thought quite close in the ninth round. I think if you look at the judges' scorecards, they all had it within one round either way. Right. And Joshua had such an impressive ninth round that Eddie Hearn was scuttling over to Joshua's corner in between rounds saying he's gone, he's gone, you've got him. And then Usyk produces one of the all-time great heavyweight rounds in round 10, puts on a masterclass and just streaks home after that, takes the 11th and the 12th as well, in my opinion, I think in the opinion of most. So any doubt that might have been simmering around uh, going into those championship rounds was eliminated because Usyk put on a virtuoso display at the end there. Yeah, when it was right there for Anthony Joshua to reclaim this and to catapult himself into the all-time greats he couldn't do it no and like it's tricky like we did the the pre-fight breakdown with Eric Donovan and Declan Taylor and all of us picked Usyk by stoppage because we thought Joshua would throw caution to the wind and just get caught with a check hook or something on the way in and as it turned out he he had a very sophisticated game plan Joshua but he wasn't winning enough rounds to justify the game plan. It was like fighting not to lose almost in some ways, which is doing him something of a disservice because if in that ninth round he had like bided his time to that point and if he had picked a perfect shot and put Usyk away, you would have thought perfect tactics by Joshua. He didn't gas out. You know, he paced himself. But as it turned out, he, he kind of ran out of time and we went out of that ninth round thinking the tide had turned irrevoc- irrevocably in Joshua's favour. And as it turned out, <laughs> like Usyk was the one who came out in round 10 and Joshua had basically given his best shot in that round 9 yeah it, it, the start of round 10 was the bit where he could have pressed home some kind of advantage but actually he just allowed Usyk to regain his life and as a result of that Usyk took massive confidence in the fact that the storm was over exactly I think Joshua in some sort of cruel irony the, his most impactful round was round 9 but as it turned out it emptied the tank on his behalf and meant that Usyk was able to take over. But Usyk had the resolve and the the technical sophistication to pick the correct punches in that round ten and take over. Like 
as much as he displayed skill throughout the fight, he displayed enormous will as well to bounce back and... Usyk. Usyk, to, yeah. re- to reclaim or hold on to those belts that Joshua would throw on the floor a few minutes later. But, you know, I think when the chips were down, quite literally, um, Usyk was the one that came out on top. Um, a, a couple of just bits and pieces in the actual fight itself to talk about then. Um, at the end, when it looked like he was completely gassed, Joshua was leaning on Usyk and kind of wrestling him around the ring. When you're like two and a half, three stone heavier and you know your opponent is essentially fitter than you are or more mobile than you are, why don't you do that from the start? Like, if 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 Tyson Fury was in that round uh, fighting Usyk, it's not just going to be hiding behind the jab. He's going to lean on him and he's going he's gonna to weigh him down and he's going to tire him out. Is that just the ring craft that Joshua doesn't have because he can't do it? Uh, what, what's behind his like being nice to his opponents yeah like the Raincraft point is a pertinent one because it was where he fell down in the first fight he, he bought all the talk about Usyk being this transcendent boxer this master craftsman and Joshua wanted to go out in Tottenham and prove you know I won an Olympic gold medal as well I can outbox him and ultimately you have like like a classically trained musician against the New York Philharmonic because Usyk has a global skill set, he's better than Joshua in every aspect. Like from a technical standpoint, the one thing Joshua does have in his favor is that size. And I thought bringing in Robert Garcia, he was going to go back to that elemental basis a little bit. Like he he uh, parted ways with Rob McCracken, who was his Olympic coach and his Team GB coach, and gone with Garcia, who's an out-and-out pro guy. And Garcia was telling him after four rounds, it's 4-0, you've won every round. And you could definitely make a case Joshua won a couple of those rounds, but there was no way he had the ascendancy in the way his corner was telling him. So the one thing Joshua needs to take away from this, and I think he can take away a lot. I think his stock went up. Uh, I think he boxed quite well against possibly the best fighter in the world. But he needs to go back to the fundamentals a little bit, the things that made him an exciting fighter when he was coming through. And it's going to be about matchmaking now because... He's not at the dance now. It's Usyk and Fury who are going on to to determine who the best heavyweight in the world is, and Joshua needs to be needs to find his way to be the the heavyweight champion of the rest of the world and take on the likes of Dillian White again, or Joseph Parker, or fight Deontay Wilder. Like who wouldn't want to see that? Like Wilder's fighting Robert Hellenius uh, later this year, and if Wilder gets a comeback fight, and you saw the fireworks he and Fury had, throw Wilder and, and Joshua in there and have an absolute firefight. Yeah, what what does the boxing purist such as yourself? What do they think of Anthony Joshua? Because like I think there's some Kenny Egan coming up, and he would have been speaking about maybe um, some of the fights that were picked from on the way up, and he was maybe I don't know like a a great story. Like, a, like there was a great story, so there was always a suggestion that the story was crafted in such a way uh, to sort of further his uh, his progression, accelerate his progression. Like you tell me, like how's he has he spoken of? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I put this, so Declan Taylor's on the beat over there and I'm kind of fascinated by the perception of Joshua because that there is, as with most things in life, it's polar opposites. You either fall down on Joshua's a hype job, never had it, or he's, you know, underrated. You know, he's actually a really good boxer and there's no room for the grey area. Like, I think he has been manoeuvred quite well, but, you know, he has had signature wins as well. You look at his CV, he's beaten some top contenders and I know that, the timeliness of the Klitschko fight at Wembley fell quite favourably for him and he had to come through hell to ultimately win that fight but that was the breakout moment for him as a crossover star so he has had big moments as well but you go right back to 10 years ago and his first fight at London 2012 and a lot of people in attendance would tell you he was quite fortunate to get the nod in that opening round and then lo and behold he goes on and wins a gold medal 
in his hometown and sky's the limit thereafter, Eddie Hearn sees dollar signs and that's what they cashed in on ultimately. So he's at a really interesting juncture now. He's, I think he's lost three of his last six. So I do think that legacy is, is interesting, right? Because um, I saw somebody talking about, oh, he saved boxing on Twitter and then getting absolutely hammered by everybody. It's like, wow, boxing existed. It's like the Premier League kind of thing, right? Mm. But actually, there, there's a there's a genesis of truth in the fact about the heavyweight division in particular. We, we'd stopped watching, the, the common sports fan had stopped watching heavyweight boxing when the Klitschko's ruled the division and were fighting in small halls in the middle of Europe against no marks who never had a chance of beating them. And then... Actually, I know you're saying it's the end of the Klitschko career, but somebody had to come and take yeah. it. And actually... Well, Fury did it first. But I think Joshua put the exclamation point on it. Uh, like, Fury went over to Germany and basically neutered the Klitschko ascendancy, whereas Joshua put the final point on it with the, with the knockout and the nature of it. But was it, was it also during the period where Fury was effectively in, in retirement? Yeah. And, and so it looked like there was nothing there and at least brought a massive surge of uh, public interest to it again, where we are supposed to be interested in this because it is, it is incredible theatre and it's like absolutely brutal as a sport. So uh, it's great to watch. Yeah, I think his role in helping to repopularize the heavyweight division is something that stands in his favor. Yeah, but like, what's going on with him afterwards? Then because this is the thing, like the he became a celebrity and got loads of money. Yeah, but I mean, I'm saying after the fight the other night, after the fight the other night, because it's sort of you're talking about legacy and and sort of all this uh, the power of the personality. And yet, it seems that there's this other sort of side to this fight, which is, I mean, he's 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 doing the old social media apology the day after, which is never a good thing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it was his own crafted line, but he said something like, "I was battling my emotions, I was battling Usyk, and I lost both." So it's a good line. It was you, a very good line. When you put it in that kind of context or put yourself in that mind frame, you can kind of see after twelve rounds of concussive punishment and apparently crazy uh, temperatures in that arena the dehydration levels I think from both fighters they both mentioned it after the fight so that conflicts or um, that combination of factors I think you can kind of see why someone wouldn't be thinking overly clearly but that was kind of the extreme of that where he was quite incoherent and I think if you could take that back needless to say he would the thing with the belts almost I think he was told on his way back to the locker room that wasn't great maybe you should go back and apologise kind of escalated from there so yeah I think unfortunately for him he's going to become a meme for the foreseeable future and I think it's probably in his best interest to get back in the ring and maybe move the story on if he can the the sweating in um, the ring was so bad that they had to stop the fight a couple of times to dry down um the ring itself and right. was it Joshua was getting wiped down or was Usyk was getting wiped down there, like, yeah it had been problematic earlier in the night as well so um, maybe we shouldn't be having fights in Saudi Arabia yeah, there's a plethora of reasons why we shouldn't be but that's um, sporting hotbed um, very hot very, it turns out it's too hot yeah you know? just, just sometimes it can be too much and it, it can have an impact on stuff like yeah. this like, but I wonder um, Fury Usyk as I mentioned is, is the go-to fight now but I think it probably would sell out uh, stadium in the UK does it have the raw box office attraction to go to Las Vegas or you know New York I'm not sure so there's a very good chance it's going to end up back much better for our bedtime if it doesn't go there I have to say yeah that's, that's really going to test you that's going to test you when it goes to 4am no it's too late so it's too I, think late. I think there's a very good chance it'll end up back um, in Saudi and is Fury 
going to take that fight. Presumably he will, because he's already kind of talking about uh, Usyk being a bum, which is, you know, that's cold for Tyson. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm back, baby. Yes. A week later. Fresh from retirement number 89. He's uh, back. And so you think it's inevitable that that fight will happen next? Well, Fury can't be seen to, on one hand, be saying, I'm the best heavyweight of this era, I'm the best heavyweight of all time, and then dodge the best contender. Like, Usyk has a very... Um, like you look at Josh or you look at um, Fury's resume he obviously beat Klitschko and that's incomparable I think given where Klitschko was at at that time but then his best win aside from that is is Wilder and Usyk's just beaten Joshua twice so you know he's beaten the other guy in, in that little trio so I think Fury has to beat Usyk to basically copper fasten any notion that he's the de facto number one I think as things stand you'd have to give him that crown if he actually does um, firm up that on retirement but it's a fascinating fight like I have to give it some thought because you've got two absolute otherworldly technicians here and Fury's got the size and boxing's rife with adages but one of them is a good big and beats a good little one and they're two very good very good ones but um, Fury has that size and it could be difficult to look past that ultimately because he knows how to use that size yeah. in a way Joshua doesn't. Yeah, yeah, that's the bit that um, you think would, would put it in his favour. Now, in retrospect, given what we've just seen, surely Tyson Fury is thinking, why didn't I take the 100 million payday and fight Joshua yeah. and have a trilogy with him because I would have beaten him three times? Yeah, I think that fight will come to pass eventually. Joshua could lose his next couple and still the Fury fight would make money because... For all that Joshua could be um, dismissed in certain quarters, uh, skill set wise, he has got power. And in the heavyweight division, that is an equaliser. And Fury might just lax uh, or lapse at some point in the fight and give Joshua an opening, and you just never know. It but seems. It seems to me that there's something introverted about his character in the ring that you can't have if you're going to be an all-time great heavyweight. That actually when the moment comes you need to rise to it as opposed to uh, that, that, uh, it's always in the football part about um, Jim Gavin saying you don't rise to the occasion you fall back on the level of your training and that's clearly happening to Joshua but actually to be the great heavyweight you need to be able to get up off the canvas the way Tyson Fury did or you need to be able to do what he did that first time against Klitschko where it's like you're, you're out of you're, you're something bigger in the moment like he's a very good he's had a great career he's incredibly rich it's an incredible story but if he used to be an all time great that ninth round he needed to finish it or the tenth round he needed to come out and follow it up but his character was to step back and go ooh the moment is here for me and I'm not big enough for it mm. like it's irrefutable you look at parallels in the past and I mentioned Klitschko had his adversity early in his career, a little bit more gung-ho in the first third of his career when he teamed up with Emmanuel Stewart. It was more safety first belt and braces, but he wasn't afraid to put opponents away either. And then Lennox Lewis had those bolts from the blue defeats and, you know, did get a bit more measured in his approach. But again, like, if he saw an opening to end a fight, he ended it. And I think you can't dismiss the, the fact that Joshua is not the same fighter as he was before he got knocked out by Andy Ruiz, because that was such a humbling defeat on all levels. Like, how could, it, how could this Adonis lose to someone like Andy Ruiz, uh, quite apart from the fact that Andy Ruiz is actually a really good fighter, but it's just the, the optics were bad. Any notion that Joshua was this, you know, perfect specimen in the non-boxing circles was gone after that because he lost to this guy who looks like a schmuck. And then 
you know, when he beat Ruiz in the rematch, it was quite uninspiring. It was there were many flashpoints, and then every fight thereafter has been there's been an absence of jeopardy and certainty of outcome. I think in, in how he went about things. So, I think as I said at the start, I think he needs to go back to the elemental levels a little bit. I think a Dillian White fight would give him the eye of the tiger back because if you go back and watch their first fight, um, it wasn't so much a boxing match as a, just a fight. So I think that could be the one that recaptures it for him if he, if he goes that direction. Okay, so that's his future. How quickly does the Usyk-Fury fight get made? Can it happen October, November, December, or is it a 2023 thing? I think it should happen towards the end of the year. It's got as, it's got as much momentum now as, it, as it's going to have. What this sport doesn't need and what this fight doesn't need is this to linger for another 12 months and the two lads to take interim fights in between and one of them loses or gets injured and it just dwindles away. Because how many chances now have we had where two fighters have had all the belts and could have matched up? Like you had it with Joshua and Wilder, you had it with Fury and Joshua, and now you have Usyk and Fury. And at some stage, these two lads just need to get it on. So... Um, Ultimately, I think that will happen. I think there's enough will there and enough money there, more importantly. So hopefully towards the end of the year, but I think I'm more optimistic. I think this fight will happen, actually, in the next six months anyway. All right, Ronan, good stuff. Thanks very much for joining us. Cheers, lads. Right, Dan, thanks for coming in as well today. Owen's going to be back tomorrow, uh, or actually probably won't be in studio, but certainly will be with us tomorrow in the aftermath of the game at Old Trafford tonight. A reminder, we're live each morning with Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. OTBAM back tomorrow. More reaction from the game. We'll be joined by Daniel Harris. Neve Briggs is going to join us from Japan after a sensational win for the Irish women's team at the weekend. Gareth Roberts will also join us for the Liverpool perspective. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.